Welcome to this episode of Moments in Leadership. Real quick, before I read the bio of this episode's guest, I'm just going to do a quick personal thank you to all the new Supercast supporters. Without you and frankly, all the supporters out there, this would just be way tougher than it really is. So thank you so much. You are all proven advocates for the project. And for that, I have deep admiration for all of you. New subscribers, Gunnery Sergeant Abby Seitz at the Hot Wash level. Abby, thank you for everything. Thank you for your friendship, being a supporter, being an advocate, and helping me just get the word out on this project through your current role. Be sure to check her page out on Instagram, iron.sites.marine, and sites is spelled S-E-I-T-Z. She has a great public profile where she does a lot of great instructional videos for current Marines and dives into a lot of history on female Marines out there in the Marine Corps. So Abby, thanks again. I have Walt Dyer at the hot wash level, Matthew Jones at the hot wash level, and Bobby Gettys at the buy me a beer level. You all, thank you again so much. Just a quick update. I'm actually getting really close to crossing the 100,000 download mark, and that just blows my mind. Um, I continue to get really great referrals to quality guests. So thank you all for that. I currently have recordings with Sergeant Major Codero, United States Marine Corps, who's down with Joint Task Force North and is the command team with Major General Matt Smith, who was a guest on the podcast at the end of December. I have recorded with retired Major General Jim Lukeman, who was 2nd Marine Division Commander for a while. You may recognize his name if you were down there serving in 2nd Marine Division. And I have newly retired Master Gunnery Sergeant Scott Stalker. So excited about those three episodes. I just need to find some time and edit them down and get them posted up. I've gained some commitments from two female Marine Corps sergeants major. Well, these are very in the very early stages of planning. I'm excited about those. And I'm also in the very early stages of planning with at least two United States Army female active duty lieutenant generals. And they've expressed interest in learning more about being guests. So stay tuned for that. Okay, with that, this episode is with recently retired Marine Corps Colonel Paul Morita. Colonel Paul Morita is a native of Oakland, California, and graduated from the University of California at Davis in 1994. In 1995, he was commissioned, and upon completion of the basic school and infantry officers course, he served from 1996 to 1999 with 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines. And while he was assigned with 3-8, he served as a rifle platoon commander, participating with Special Purpose MAGTAF-8 in support of Operation Assured Response in the embassy in Monrovia, Liberia, and he was also a weapons platoon commander where he completed a unit deployment program to Okinawa. That may sound familiar because if you listen to General Alford's episode where he talks about being in Liberia, Paul Morita was one of his platoon commanders. Okay, upon returning from UDP, he deployed again with BLT-38 as the 81mm mortar platoon commander and completed a deployment with the 22nd MU. During his deployment, he participated in Operation Joint Guardian in Kosovo and AVID response in Turkey. Then from 2000 to 2002, he transferred to the Marine Corps Combat Development Command, where he served as the Staff Secretary and Adjutant within the Warfighting Development Integration Directorate. And then in June of 2002, he left MECDEC and attended Expeditionary Warfare School in Quantico, Virginia, where he graduated with honors. From 2003 to 2006, he returned back to Camp Lejeune, where he served with 1st Battalion, 6th Marines. Serving as a rifle company commander, he completed a deployment with the 22nd MU in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. 
Upon that battalion's return from Afghanistan, Colonel Morita served as the battalion operations officer for 1-6 in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Then from 2006 to 2009, he was assigned to the staff of the basic school in Quantico, Virginia. During that period, Colonel Morita served as a section head in the instructor group, as well as a company commander for two student companies. In 2009, he attended the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, where he was a distinguished graduate and earned a master's degree in military studies. Following Command and Staff College, he attended the Marine Corps School of Advanced Warfighting and earned a master's degree in operational studies. Then from 2011, he was assigned to the 2nd Marine Division Forward as the G3 Future Operations Officer in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. In May of 2012, he took command of 1st Battalion 6th Marines and in this capacity participated in a MU deployment in 2014 with the 2-2 MU. In 2015, he gave up command and served as the Regimental Executive Officer for 6th Marine Regiment. And then from 2015 to 2016, he attended Marine Corps War College, graduating with another master's degree in Strategic Studies. In 2016, he was assigned to the Joint Staff J-5, where he worked strategy, plans, and policy issues on the Iran desk. In 2018, he was assigned as the branch head for Strategy Branch at Headquarters Marine Corps PPO. Colonel Morita took command of the 22nd MU in August of 2019. He served as Commander, Special Purpose, Marine Air Ground Task Force Crisis Response to Africa 20.2 from May of 2020 until October 2020. And then from March to October 2022, he deployed the 22nd MU aboard the USS Kearsarge Amphibious Ready Group in the 6th Fleet Area of Responsibility. So with that, welcome Colonel Paul Morita onto Moments in Leadership. I'm really excited about having you on this episode because you're a recent MU commander and I haven't had a MU commander on yet. That's That's recent some of the general officers were new commanders but this is exciting because it's it's new it's something i can relate to because you and i were on muse in in the 90s so we can talk about that and i really think that given the fact that the muse are kind of getting back to what they used to look like or a little bit about what they used to look like relative to the past 20 years so much of your experience is going to be really really valuable to incoming mu commanders incoming you know, battalion level gce the ace the logistics and in even the company commanders on these MUs, I just think that this is going to be a really great episode. Plus, you've got such other great experience with being a TBS company commander and some uh, combat deployments as a, as a lieutenant that were outside of the Afghanistan-Iraq conflicts, the late 80s stuff. So, so this would be really great. But I usually start these conversations by saying, like jumping right into, you know, tell me about your first three years. And I'm, I'm going to get to that. But I, I want to ask you a question that's a little bit off the cuff because because I'm interested in hearing being a mu commander. I, gosh, I mean, when I think about a mu commander, I can see a I can see a full bird colonel and a mu commander standing next to each other, and I'm like, those are <laughs> to me a mu commander is like really, really, really a significant role to be playing in the Marine Corps. And so at some point, you were, you were a colonel, or you were coming up on the command slate for colonel. And I want to hear about the second you found out that you had been selected to be a MU commander. Well, well, thanks for having me uh, here this morning, Dave. Yeah, I would say, you know, getting selected uh, for 06 command and especially 06 command of a MU, uh, a bit surreal, uh, to be to be honest. It was my number one choice. Uh, I got it. You know, I, I certainly felt I was well suited for it. 
I had been a BLT commander on a MU. I had been a company commander on a MU. I had been an 81 platoon commander on a MU. So I, I, I had plenty of MU experience. But when I thought back to my previous MU commanders, I was like, wow, I never really considered myself in like their league. And so, you know, to, to be selected for uh, the 22nd MU was certainly a, a high honor. And, and I absolutely loved my experience as the CEO of the 22nd MU. Was, I was very, very fortunate. I got to hold the MU. I got to, you know, got to lead the MU for four years and do a couple of deployments. So it was a very, very fortunate opportunity for me. Yeah, that, that's interesting because um, a four-year MU command is is a little untraditional, isn't it? So it, it sounds to me like you had two separate things, right? And I know that from talking to you, but did that, was that a function of somebody just didn't fleet up in time or what, what caused the four year versus the two year that's more traditional? Originally, I thought it would be about two, two and a half years. And where, where we were at, where we were at in the schedule, it would have lined up that way. And then the schedule changed to meth, switched some things around. And so they had us go do a, the, the last iteration of special purpose MAGTAF crisis response Africa I think that was 20.2. And that was the last time an 06 command went out there to do that. So we did that. And then uh, I was fortunate that they let, they kind of let me stick around long enough to do uh, a traditional MU deployment. They probably, they definitely could have moved me, but I was fortunate enough to, to stick around and I wanted to stick around. That's why it ended up being four years, which is a yeah, little bit on the long side, but really, really, really a good opportunity. And I, I was really, really glad that I got to do uh, the traditional new deployment. So just to put a finer point on the original question, but where exactly were you? Did, do you get a phone call from someone when you get, or, or is it like the message just comes out or like that moment of when you found out, I'm curious about. I don't know. I, I think it just, the message came out. And I think I might've been, I think I might've been at the Pentagon at the times uh, working and might've just been hitting, you know, refresh on the Mar admins, uh, you know, every, every two minutes. Uh, that, that's probably how it went down. I seem to remember finding out when I was at work at the Pentagon, but I'm not exactly positive. That just might be my memory playing tricks on me. So back to the more traditional uh, line of questioning here. I, I really, I love when I get the feedback from people who are listening that they really enjoy hearing about Marines or, or any branch of the service senior leaders talking about their first two or three, even four years yeah. in the Marines or, or in their branch of the service, because it's so relatable, right? Every every single Marine starts out as a, an E1 or an O1, and not everybody becomes an O6 or an, or an E8 or E9. Everybody can relate to what your first couple of years were like. I'm wondering if you can take a flashback, because you mentioned that you were a platoon commander on MU, and point of clarification, because I've had General Dale Alford on before, but I think you all were at least in the same battalion together on that operation. In, li- in Liberia. Assured response. I think that's what it was called. Was that all the same time? Were you there at the same time? Was Or was he even your company commander or different companies? Or General Alford was my, was my first company commander, and I'll, I'll kind of go into that real quick. Okay. Um, but he, he's actually, he's retiring me in about a, in about a month. My first three, four years in the Marine Corps, uh, I spent three and a half years in the fleet as a lieutenant in 3-8. And so second lieutenant, first lieutenant, I think I was picking up captain as I was walking out the door. Three and a half years, uh, really, really, really awesome tour for, for, for me personally. Very, very formative. Uh, it had a lot of impact on the, it has had a lot of impact on the rest of my career. Speaking specifically about Liberia, graduated from IOC, 
went home on leave and got called off of leave early to me and three other lieutenants were going to fly overseas and meet the battalion or part of the battalion off the coast of Liberia on the USS Ponce. Uh, flew, flew back to Lejeune, checked into my first unit. Uh, most of the battalion was gone. Got my gear and three and four of us, four second lieutenants, got on a C-130, flew flew across the ocean and then you know, C-130 down the coast of Africa until we got to Sierra Leone. And then we got it picked up by a CH-46 and it took us out to the ship. And that's where we met our first, that's where we met our battalion commander. That's where we met our, uh, our first company commander. And that's where we met our first platoons. I remember meeting my first platoon, second platoon Kilo company on the flight deck of the USS Ponce. And a couple of days later, we were, we were, we were rotating into the embassy to, uh, you know, to guard the U.S. embassy during a period of, uh, you know, unrest during, I think that was 1996, summer of 1996. Okay. So now I've got, a, I, got I have a million questions now. So, okay. First question was, for you and three other lieutenants get called off of leave, were there other lieutenants going to 3-8 that, that didn't get picked to go on that? Like, was there a little bit of jealousy? Like, oh man, that sort of thing? I, I remember that there were about eight or nine of us Ooh. from IOC going to, to 3-8. I, I have no idea how the four of us got picked. I think it was probably pretty random. I mean, I certainly, it, it wasn't had any, it had zero to do with, a, you know, I think how we performed at IOC. I think it was just random, but I was obviously excited to be one of the four that was going. And uh, little did I know it, that I was really, really fortunate to, that I went to Kilo Company and, and got to serve uh, under the tutelage of uh, Dale Alford uh, for a couple of years. That was a really, really awesome experience. And uh, again, you know, kind of the beginning of a lifelong uh, relationship that I've been uh, fortunate uh, to be part of. So all four lieutenants go to the Ponce. I'm envisioning you land, you get off, somebody's greeting you, but there are platoons, infantry platoons embarked on the Ponce that have no no lieutenant at all. So where were the prior platoon commanders? So 3-8 was not like ready to go on a deployment. They weren't supposed to go on a deployment. They were just a battalion at Lejeune, you know, that that really wasn't even in the workup for anything. So the 22nd Mew, and I think it was BLT-2-2, had, had originally responded to Liberia. And, you know, Liberia used to be on the like we used to do so many neos and embassy reinforcements of Monrovia, Liberia, that it used to be on the Second Marine Division T. On this iteration, the 22nd Mu and BLT 22 had been in Liberia, and so what they did, they wanted to get the Mu out of there, and so they stood up a special purpose MAGTAF called the Special Purpose MAGTAF 8 under Eighth Marines. BLT 38 was part of that Special Purpose MAGTAF, all deployed on a single ship. One of the old LPDs and 3-8 just picked up what they could put, you know, put on the ship, what they could fit. Basically two, two rifle companies and some and some others. Again, they weren't ready to go on a deployment. So they had a lot of holes from a, from a personnel perspective. And so there was a lot of missing lieutenants. I, I took over for a staff sergeant that had been running the platoon for, I think, for about nine months. Uh, staff Sergeant Stout it was ended up being my first platoon sergeant and a, an absolutely phenomenal Marine and a good friend. So the battalion basically got on the Ponce and started sailing across the Atlantic, get, getting on station. And then the CH-46 comes in with a couple of brand new second lieutenants. What was that like? That was, I mean, cause like my experience picking up my first platoon was I was in a parking lot. I had plenty of time to introduce myself to everybody. And you're flying into a flight deck, essentially getting ready to go do a, a NEO. Yeah. So an embassy reinforcement. So from what I remember, I literally, I think we were literally going from like, I think I was there for a couple of days 
you go into Kilo Company, you'll meet your platoon. And then literally, I think after that, I think we were picking up and going into the embassy shortly thereafter. So it was really you know, kind of like hit the ground, here's some ammo, and let's go. And uh, I remember the platoon being pretty small. We weren't a full rifle platoon. I think we had some weapons platoon attachments that were permanently attached. There were probably like 25, 30 Marines in the platoon at the time. Didn't have a whole lot of time to get to know everybody too well. That Right. That kind of, that happened in the embassy, but it was really happy to be here. Get ready to get on the bird. Wow. So because you've had such a long career in the infantry community, you've seen lieutenants come and go and pick their platoons up. What were some of those aha moments that you had about picking up a, a platoon on ship as you're going in to do an embassy reinforcement versus watching other lieutenants later in your career pick up their platoons, obviously different kind of pickups. What did you take away from that pickup of your platoon on ship that was really formative to you that other lieutenants were not going to ever experience, even probably today? You know, I I think it was originally, well, not only was I new platoon commander, but I was, you know, meeting, beating a bunch of Marines literally as we were going into a real world operation. So if I remember correctly, it was really let me just keep my mouth shut as much as I possibly can and, and, and really not try to step on, my, uh, step on my crank right out the door here. It was pretty evident to me uh, that I had a really strong platoon sergeant. And again, he had run the platoon for, like I said, eight, nine months. And I certainly relied on his uh, advice and mentorship. Uh, and that was really, you know, I said, I would try to figure it out as I go and, and get, in, get in the embassy and, and start meeting the Marines and try to figure out like, you know, okay, how do I take what I learned in Quantico for a year and now apply that apply that in a real world operation right out the gate? I, I'm trying to imagine putting myself in your shoes and it's just hard to, to, I can come up with a ton of questions, but I can't, I can't come up with a lot of linkage between my time. But what, so tell me about Staff Sergeant Stout. What were, you, you've, you've already said what a great Marine he was and continues to be a good friend to this day. It sounds very similar to my relationship with my first platoon sergeant, but how did he handle it? What what were some of the lessons you think that he learned from that experience? One, he was just an outstanding guy and an outstanding staff NCO. And, and you know, what I remember is that, you know, and I think what's a little bit different now is that he had about 12, 13 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, he was an extremely experienced a Marine leader and had been in several infantry battalions and had been to the drill field and had a tremendous reputation in, in the battalion uh, and has, was had a lot of energy, uh, strong personality. and But, I'll, but I, I'll tell you what, and he had ran the platoon for a while, almost a year. I think he was, he was almost, not so much relieved, but I think he was more than happy to hand it over to a young second lieutenant and and be the platoon sergeant. What I what I what I watched from him was somebody who was very very gracefully went from the person in charge of the platoon to the person who was now assisting the person in charge of the platoon. And he did that almost effortlessly and very very gracefully uh, and very very professionally. And uh, it's something that really kind of just stuck with me over the years. Just really really fond of the guy. And just went, he went on to have a, a phenomenal career. Retired as a master gunnery sergeant. Just a great, great individual, great, great family, and a great, great Marine. I love those kind of stories. One of the things that I have come to realize in doing this project, and Paul, I don't know why I never realized this before. Maybe every other officer realizes this, and I'm the I'm the standout, but you come as a lieutenant, and you have your platoon sergeant, you know, staff sergeant, and the reality of it is, other than maybe going out and doing drill field or something intermittent in that career, 100% of their experience is at the platoon level. So you've got Staff Sergeant Stout has 13 years of experience that has never 
gone above really being in that platoon level. He's been a fire team leader. He's been a squad leader. He's now a platoon sergeant. He's got some drill field experience. I don't really think I, that ever really dawned on me until I started talking to some of the enlisted Marines on this project that the amount of experience that a platoon sergeant has is so vastly deep. But it's so much more vastly deep than even even a second, even a first lieutenant's experience walking out the door getting ready to pick up captain. It's still a two or three X times experience at the platoon level. And so even your sergeants and your corporals with all those experience, that never dawned on me. And when I when I hear a story like you just told, it it reminds me of of that experience gap and, and how value and that's really what makes that relationship between a brand new lieutenant and a staff sergeant so successful because the, the world is awash with second lieutenant jokes and justifiably and, you know, humorously, I get it. But but at the same time, like if a bad lieutenant is walking out the door, you could probably look at all the enlisted Marines that didn't didn't train that Marine properly because of all that experience. And that so that relationship is just so vital to the career launching of an officer, because I'll go back to what I said to you before. Every officer starts out as a second lieutenant, and then you become a MU commander. So I could argue that Staff Sergeant Stout created a MU commander, and he had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would give him some of the credit. Definitely. I, would, I was, uh, and that that three and a half years at three eight again, I, I said was pretty formative. Just some of the people that I came into contact with there. That was really a gifted, a gifted unit, and uh, I learned a lot of a lot of lessons those three and a half years. And I think those things have stuck with me over the years and probably have something to do with you know how my career went over the next 28 years. Tell me about your, so I'm still in your lieutenant time. Tell me about what I always called the LPA, the Lieutenant Protective Association. It may have changed a little bit now, but what was your LPA like? What were all of the other, your cohort of lieutenants at 3A? Generally, what were they all like? And did any of them go on to have a career as long as yours? We had a really, really good group of lieutenants. There was a good group of lieutenants when we got there. I thought we had a really, really good group of guys that went with uh, with me from IOC to 3A. Uh, but there was some really exceptional lieutenants there when we got there. And I think you kind of put the new guys together with the with the quality guys that were there. And I thought we had a really, really, really quality LPA during that three and a half years. I mean, really, there's just some exceptional guys there when we got there. Farrell Sullivan was a was sure. first lieutenant. I think he had it. I think he had the Capitoon. Dave Fallon was there. Billy Ray Moore, Von Ward. Rob Peterson, Seth Lapine and Weapons Company. Just a lot of a lot of quality dudes. Not too many. There weren't I don't really remember any of the senior lieutenants being 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 dicks to us. And so that was nice. And I think, you know, that was something that I think the me and my cohort sort of appreciated. And we tried to we tried to do that when it was our turn to be the senior lieutenants in the battalion. We tried to we tried to do the same thing. Uh, but it was a it was a great group. Did anybody from my IOC class stick around as long as uh, at least the group that went with me? I don't think so. Not that I re- not that not that I remember. I th- so I remember back to my lieutenant days, and I'm sure that this was a common theme with you too. But there's always when the lieutenants get together and they start you know shit mouthing. You're like, oh, Captain so and so is such a dick or whatever. And did you not you personally, but you, when I say you, I mean like the LPA. Did you ever look at a captain and be like, that guy just, uh, and then you become a captain and the picture becomes clear and you're like, you know what, man, I was totally, we were totally wrong about that or that culture or anything like that. Because I had a few of those moments myself. Yeah, I'm probably, I would assume we did. That's kind of natural. 
you know? Yeah. Especially once you pick up first lieutenant and you got a deployment under your belt, you think you, you think you know everything at that point, you could solve every problem in the Marine Corps if they would just listen to you. But we had, we had a, it was, like I said, it was a pretty quality organization, top to bottom. We had a couple company commanders, Dale Alford and Bill Journey, you know, and my first battalion commander was Paul Lefevre and that was, like I said, really, really, really an exceptional battalion. Just the vibe in that battalion was was something very, very memorable. What were some of the things that you remember? Because that was a fire hose introduction to a company and a platoon. And then you've got this really larger than life personality with Dale Alford. And, and most of the listeners that are listening to this episode have heard the two episodes with, with Dale that I had yeah. over the past year. What were some of your initial moments, you know? With him as your company commander, because an embassy reinforcement, that's not your traditional IOC, two up, one back operational thing. What were some of the things that you remember about Dale's initial impact on you as a leader? I remember his initial guidance. When he picked up the company the same time I picked up the platoon. I mean, we literally were happening almost simultaneously. You know, his initial guidance was not so much about the embassy as, as mission as it was, this is what kind of company we're going to be. And I remember it was, we're going to be able to... Uh, uh, hit, what, hit what we're aiming at, move with our gear on, and that we were going to be disciplined. Uh, those were the three things that uh, Kilo Company was going to be about. I remember that. I remember he and his lieutenants did a TDG uh, just about every day. He would break out a TDG. He'd have about five or six copies of it. He'd pass it around and we'd sit there and do a TDG. I remember the company, we, we read books. It's like, hey, this is the first book we're reading. Okay. Very, very quickly, I had a, a pretty good appreciation for value of PME. I think that was that was his way of sort of getting people to to see how people underneath him thought and and how people underneath him got a chance to to see how he thought uh, and I thought that was pretty valuable. Again, I think it was just an appreciation for the value of not just training, which you have a pretty good appreciation for by the time you get out of IOC, but but also education and how those two things are sort of related. I'm definitely going to come back to that statement when we talk about your MU command and your three subordinate battalion level commanders, because I'll be interested in to see what kind of connection there was between your initial experience with General Alfred and then being a MU commander. Still sticking just a little bit more on your on your 01 to 03 time. I, actually, I want to stick like below company command time. Any other notable moments in your time as, as a lieutenant in the infantry battalion specifically, did you have any of those moments where you're like, ooh, I just really messed up or you got your ass chewed or you did something wrong and, and maybe some of the mentoring that took place to kind of apply the corrective action to a young lieutenant in such a way, obviously it didn't impact your career because you became a commander, but were there any of those moments of like failure? I hate to use the word failure because we no, none of us likes to think like we fail, but maybe, maybe something like that. I think there were lots of them, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. And I, I, I say that there was a common theme among most of them. It was my lack of maturity and not that I was, you know, completely immature. I probably was sometimes, but a lot of it was just sometimes not mature enough. That stuck with me. And I was fortunate that I had people that let me know or let me, you know, they, they informed me when they thought I was being immature or I had done something that I probably could have done a little bit better or handled something a little bit better. Part of that is also being able to kind of self-reflect and recognize those moments yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, you know, man, I, I really, I probably shouldn't have said that that way. I didn't, that, when I reacted to that incident, uh, it had this effect. That probably wasn't really good. And I think I was probably really overly emotional as a lieutenant. That was probably a, a trait that I had to work on over the years and kind of something about my, my personality and, and my leadership style that need to be fine-tuned. 
if I was going to be able to grow and be a better company commander than I had been a platoon commander or be a better battalion commander than I had been a company commander. That was, I needed to continue to sort of evolve, especially from, you know, being able to kind of keep my emotions in check and just overall kind of maturity level commensurate with the level of responsibility and the grade that you're in. That's interesting that you say that. That's very reminiscent of, I think, how I behaved as a lieutenant too, probably like, you know, massively over-emotional. And I don't know if I've ever washed that out of my system totally. I think I'm just more aware of it and I know how to tone it down a little sure. bit. I'll share with you something that General Bellin said to me recently when we were talking about the the emotions of leading. And uh, he, he has a son who's a lieutenant right now, infantry officer. And, and we were just talking about what lieutenants are like today versus, you know, how we were back in our days. And he said to me, he goes, you know, one of the one of the most critical things that I see young officers dealing with is being passionate without having all the emotion. Like there's a difference between being passionate and being emotional. And you don't really figure those things out until you have a little bit more experience under your belt. But I that that resonated with me because I think to myself, gosh, I'm I'm 56 years old and my passions bleed over into emotion all the time. So I, I think that's an interesting observation that you made about yourself and, and the maturity thing. Because that's probably a that's probably a common denominator for all lieutenants. That's a really great way to seg- segue into the next part of this is, you know, kind of jumping into your company command time. So you just talked about all the faults, well, whatever you want to call it. You said a lot of faults. Now all of a sudden you're a company commander, you got these lieutenants. <laughs> what was, was it like looking in the mirror a little bit? Did, did, had you grown a little bit and now you're shaking your head or were you trying to teach them, hey, here's what I learned as a lieutenant? What was that like? Yeah, I believe I did. I think I did. I know that was something I was looking forward to. Uh, as a company commander, was the was the opportunity to you know have my own lieutenants, and uh, I had a good group of lieutenants. I was uh, we had a good company. I will tell you this: company command was overall a great experience, but it was a very very difficult battalion to be in, and we had a very very difficult battalion commander, and so I felt like I felt a lot of us were just trying to survive uh, in that battalion, do the best we could, and kind of try to shield you know the company from you know, a lot of BS that was going on in the battalion, mm-hmm. and so I, I think it probably stunted in some ways my development. It probably stunted in some ways my lieutenant's development. It probably in some ways stunted the company's development because just the atmosphere was so was so toxic and bizarre and so different than what I experienced as a lieutenant for three and a half years. It was almost the exact opposite environment that I had experienced for, you know, as a as a lieutenant in three eight. Can I can I get into that with you or is it sensitive? I'm I'm happy to talk about it all day long. I'm not trying to drag names out. What I'm trying to drag out is like situation, scenario, culture, so people can learn from like your experience yeah. in dealing. Cause you, you said toxic and bizarre. The guy had some endearing qualities. He just, uh, there were some things about him that were so far off. It just, it just didn't work. I think this is really valuable because I, I love the segments where people talk about this sort of stuff because it allows a listener to say like, that's an example of something I promise I will never become. I, that's yeah. always the outcome of these kind of stories. So I heard you say a couple of things. We were just trying to survive. It was a difficult battalion. It was toxic and bizarre relative to your lieutenant time. That creates a slew of questions, right? Can you give some examples about what was it about the culture or the environment that was toxic and bizarre? So people can kind of listen to the story and say like, huh, okay, uh, I'm going to make sure I, I think about that when when the time is right for my command levels. You know, first off, 
I'd say there was a, a significant lack of trust in the battalion. It was the kind of battalion that people did not want to come, did not want to come to work. Uh, they weren't happy to be there. The atmosphere was bad. You know, people were threatened. Uh, there was, you know, kind of like demeaning. It's not that anybody can't handle an ass chewing, but right. the ass chewings, the ass chewings were nonstop all the time. Felt, you know, I can handle getting my ass chewed. I don't know if you need to chew my ass in front of my company. That that's something that I don't think you need to ever do to somebody. And and so that those kind of things, you're not you're not really you're not kind of creating the type of environment that I think commanders should be trying to you know create. And another, you know, another lesson that I took away during that time was that I watched, at least in my own mind, what I thought I remember seeing and experiencing was a battalion commander who was trying to endear himself to the Marines at the expense of his company commanders and senior staff and CEOs. And that was something that, that did not sit well with me then. It was something that I remembered when I was a battalion commander that I was really going to do my best to ever try to give the impression that I was trying to do something like that. Or, you know, an infantry battalion is a big enough tent for there to be more than one good leader and one, and one voice and one, you know, and one personality. And so again, that was just, there were, there were things that I remember. And those are a couple of, a couple lessons. And coincidentally, I got to command the exact same battalion. And so there were some, there was definitely some lessons to be learned on when I was a company commander on on things that I was going to try to avoid that I said, I could certainly contrast that with my experiences as a Lieutenant in three, which were phenomenally different. So it's interesting. I kind of want to dig in on that a little bit more because company command is such a formative time and, and, and it's also a blip on the, the radar and you were in combat with your company. So I, I, I do think there's a lot of things to really unpack there, but I'm curious about this and you may not be able to answer this question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway, because you might have a, an opinion, but I look at the process that's in place where we select commanders especially an infantry commander, especially an infantry commander that's going to tick up BLT and head out on a mew. And so there's all of these command screening boards and there's fitness reports and there's that battalion commander was a platoon commander who had a company commander that was reporting on him. And then he was a company commander. He had a battalion commander that was reporting on him. At some point, I just don't believe that somebody becomes a battalion commander, turns into a toxic leader like that. So I'm asking you to kind of reflect back and maybe make some assumptions here. They're probably valuable, which is like, what's happening there in the system that you can give me an opinion on that, that could be valuable to people who sit on command screening boards in the future, or that company commander who's identifying that lieutenant, the battalion commander who's identifying that company commander. How does that slip through the cracks? That's a great question. The explanation is probably different for different people in different mm -hmm. situations. But I would say in general, that I think the process that we have is good it's just not perfect. I don't think we've ever had a perfect process for selecting leaders at that level. And I don't think we ever probably will have a perfect process, but I think it's pretty good. It's it's a process based off human inputs. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just don't think you can you can get fail safe, fail safe process. Uh, when, when the inputs are can be subjective. I totally get what you're talking about. I'm curious, like as a company commander, what were some of the things that you did to do as much as you could to be the umbrella over the bullshit that was raining down on you? Probably not enough, to be frank. It was such a it was such a a crazy, a crazy environment. I will say this, you know, despite everything that I described about the environment, the battalion did its job in Afghanistan. And I mm -hmm. thought it did pretty well. And I was extremely proud of how the company, I had Charlie Company, and I was extremely proud of how the company did. When, when we got into a couple scrapes, you know, we won. When it was our, when, it, when we had an opportunity to close with and destroy the enemy, we did. 
the company was tough. It was a very, very physically tough company. And we got tougher in Afghanistan. Uh, it was a tough deployment. You know, there wasn't really, this wasn't really uh, an Afghanistan deployment or an Iraq deployment where you operated out of a firm base. I mean, I think we operated in the field at, at, for weeks at a time, mm-hmm. you know, and they would just kind of bring us shower water every few days by helicopter. And we just kept walking around and hiking around and, and operating. Uh, with very, very, you know, very, very limited time spent in any kind of rear area trying to refit. So there was a very, very tough company. They were physically tough and they fought hard and uh, they did a good job when it was their opportunity to, to perform at the highest level. So pretty pleased with how the company did. But again, we just had that layer of crap going on uh, above us. Did that battalion commander serve throughout the entire deployment? Yeah, it, he was actually, I think, relieved probably about two weeks before his change of command. After deployment and about two weeks before the change of command. So as a company commander, you obviously have your lieutenants. Were any of them brand new like you were when you went in Afghanistan? Or did you have a full workup with them on the MU and they were a pretty solid team by the time you got your boots on the ground? Yeah, it was, uh, it was different than what I experienced with Liberia. The lieutenants had gotten there at sort of a normal time. We had some time before the MU workup, and then we had the MU workup, and then we had the deployment. From that sense, uh, we had it was a more traditional kind of dwell, period of dwell, where the unit got to coalesce and, and kind of build up through the workup and then to the deployment. I'm going to use my air quotes here for listeners, but when you look down on your platoon command teams, right, the, the, the platoon commander and the platoon sergeant teams in a dynamic environment like combat, what were some of the challenges that you saw those lieutenants and staff sergeants have in that environment that IOC and squad leaders course and things like that just didn't, not in a bad way, but didn't prepare them for? What were some of those challenges that you saw them identify and then grow through or maybe not not grow? I'd say probably a combination of continuing actions and Mm -hmm. just really kind of maintaining unit discipline during a period where it's not hard to let your discipline slip a little bit. Again, like we would get off the helicopter and then we wouldn't get picked up for three, four weeks. And so, you know, trying to, you know, maintain continuing actions and maintain unit discipline and, and any type of standards in regards to whether it's shaving in the field or keeping mm-hmm. our weapons clean or maintaining a proper alert level uh, at nighttime. That's, that is, that is, can be, obviously can be a challenge. And that's where, yeah. you know, Disciplined units are able to do that and undisciplined units are not able to do that. And I thought we did a pretty good job, but that doesn't happen perfectly overnight. I mean, it's something you got to you got to work through and stay on top of. And probably that was probably the thing that the lieutenants and their and their platoon sergeants probably had to wrestle with the most on a day to day basis was just those those little things. Yeah, those little things that are really the difference between you know, the varsity teams and the JV teams. Did you see any command, again, my air quotes with platoon command teams, seem to gel in training and then experience some conflict when you got into country? And if so, what were some of the things that you saw both of those parties do to reconcile and improve relationships there? there? There's oftentimes there's oftentimes a little bit of a personality class between lieutenants and, and staff sergeants or, or lieutenants and gunnies. And I, I think sometimes they're able to work through that. Most of the time they're able to work through that. I think sometimes they, they don't to the detriment of all. I, I thought our teams worked through that pretty good. You know, I think my job in the company, first sergeant's job is kind of staying attuned to those things. I thought we did a decent job of that. 
there wasn't anything that really got in the way of the, the individual platoons or the company. But again, that's a tough environment and people are pushed to the limit, both men mentally and physically. It was one of those deployments where, I mean, you know, we've got Marines that are losing 10, 15, 20 pounds out there just walking around. It was a, it was a physically demanding deployment. The genesis of my question was that physical exhaustion and exertion can exacerbate personality conflicts pretty quickly, whether you're in combat or not. And I was just kind of curious because you, you've talked about what a hard deployment that is. I, I just don't know how people can train for something like losing 20 pounds and, and walking for weeks on end and things like that. It's just an untrainable environment and you've either got to do it or not do it. And I got to imagine that there were some challenges. So now I'm kind of curious as I, I'm still in your company command time, were there any moments that you had in command at that point where you were like, you know, I've got, I'm assuming you had like seven years of experience at that point, maybe eight. Did you say to yourself, I did not anticipate this. This was not something that I ever foresaw being a personal challenge for me. This wasn't something, I don't mean to say you weren't trained for it, but it's possible that you couldn't have been, you know, you may have come across a situation where you didn't feel like, wow, this is, I'm unprepared for this. Any of those kind of moments and what you learned from that? The one thing that probably sticks out to me right now is you know, the length of some of the ops. Like I said, you you go out there, you thought you were going out there for seven to seven to 11 days and you're out there for 21 to 28 days. Kind of a regular field event, you know, is, is a three, four day endeavor. You know, even if you're at CACS, you're not going out to the, out into the box for, for two, three weeks at a time. So putting the company in Afghanistan off, you know, getting out of a helicopter and not getting back on the helicopter mm -hmm. for, for three, for three to four weeks, that is, I don't know. I don't know if it was something that we said, man, we're unprepared for this, but it was something that I know none of us had really had ever really experienced. And so we were trying to figure out, you know, what were some of the implications for being out there for three to four weeks, you know, as far as taking care of ourselves and being able to make sure the company could continue to function and be disciplined and uh, be effective. Yeah. Tell me about some of the experience that you had with your own company command team, you and your first sergeant, lessons learned there, lessons that he learned or she learned, I'm assuming, he, I'm assuming he back then. Yeah, we, I, I had a, a really, really, I thought a really, really good company command team. We had a company gunny that we lost right before the deployment because he got promoted to first sergeant. Uh, so we had a, a gun, a, the gunny who was in weapons platoon fleeted up to be the company gunny. But other than that, we had a very cohesive company command team. My first sergeant was first sergeant Hoopy, who was just an absolute animal, and he was at his and and he was at his best in combat. Mm -hmm. He was not the kind of first sergeant who sat back in the company, you know, assembly area, or he wasn't with the vehicles. Company first sergeant was up front, getting some leading from the front. You know, I can remember my company first sergeant picking up a wounded marine and putting him on his back so he could carry him down a mountain, so we could get him to a donkey so that we could put the wounded Marine on a donkey so that we could get the Marine wounded Marine to a vehicle so that we could get the Marine on a vehicle to an LZ that we could finally put the wounded Marine in an LZ, you know, so we could pick picked up by a helicopter and taken back to, uh, to an area where there was some, uh, some medical attention back in Kandahar. He was that kind of first sergeant. He was big, tough at, at his best in combat, a fighting company. First sergeant I had a great company XO, Chris Kozad, phenomenal, phenomenal officer, good, good company, Gunny, Gunny Wilson, Great, great fire support team leader, uh, Frank Meese, just gave up an infantry battalion last year. Phenomenal Marine. Just a really, really good 
good group of uh, Marine leaders up there, officers and staff and COs. Again, that's, you know, it's good companies are not good for, you know, by accident. They got a lot of good people up there. And our company command team, I thought was exceptional. What sort of advice do you have for the senior first lieutenant that's out there listening to this right now that's fleeting up to become an XO? Yeah, well, XO is a, you know, I had not, I had not been a, a company XO when I was a lieutenant. I had three and a half years of platoon commander time, but mm-hmm. I had about a year, about a, about a year and a half as an independent platoon commander. So you're doing some XO type stuff when you're an independent platoon commander. Right. In, in, in my case, 81s. I, I'd say, you know, the ability to, the ability to kind of like, you know, look forward in time and, and forecast and anticipate is probably crucial for, you know, a company XO or an independent platoon commander. You know, an independent platoon commander is, is kind of coming up with his own plan or his, her own plan where the company XO is generally trying to execute, you know, the, the plan that the company commander is coming up with. But the ability to kind of like forecast and coordinate and, and get a lot of those behind the scenes type things done and, and done well, not to mention be the two IC of the company, which is sometimes a little bit undervalued and, and under and underappreciated. There's a tactical role for the XO as, as well as sort of like the, the support uh, function of the XO. Any, any lessons learned from company command in combat in a toxic environment that I didn't ask you a question about? Yeah, Dave, if, if, I, if I could add something, uh, I wouldn't mind adding one thing about my lieutenant time. I don't think I properly you know, addressed my lieutenant time. Probably one of the most important things that I learned in 3.8 as a lieutenant, and this wasn't something I don't think, you know, this wasn't like a something that we talked about every day. This is something that I just, I think maybe I appreciated after the fact was one of the reasons I thought 3.8 was really good, and this has stuck with me forever, is we weren't just a good tactically. What was good about 3.8 was that I thought we were really, really good at what we were supposed to be, you know, our shoot, move, and communicate responsibilities as a battalion. But there, the 3.8 was an organization that had the intangibles, morale, esprit de corps, cohesion, discipline, leadership, all those things that, you know, maybe don't translate well to, uh, you know, a McCree checklist or a pre-deployment checklist uh, they're not always quantifiable. I think we were good at the, quanti- the quantifiable aspects of combat readiness, but those intangible will-type qualities that battalion had in abundance. And I think it was the combination of, of sort of tangible tangible skills and those intangible will, those intangible will-type qualities is really what made 3-8 a, a special battalion. And then if I could take that forward in time, I thought the, the battalion I was in as a company you know, I, I think they lacked some of the intangibles. I thought we were we were we were fine from a tangible perspective, but where we were lacking was that we didn't have some of those intangible type skills at, as a as a battalion. And I and I think that sort of limited us, you know, as far as how far we we probably could have gotten as a battalion was that we just didn't have some of those underlying intangible type qualities that I had seen in three eight uh, as a lieutenant. Yeah, so now I, now I'm probably going to ask you the hardest question I've got, and it's it's off the cuff here. But most people listening to this podcast are hoping to get some sort of hack. How can I be the best lieutenant possible? How can I be the best company commander possible? How can I listen to these stories and become better at what I do? They're looking for the hack. And what I just heard you say was that it's the intangibles. So what are those? Yeah, like I said, I, I would say it's it's the things like esprit de corps, uh, morale, cohesion, the trust. Trust, trust doesn't really fall under shoot, move, and communicate. You know, it's 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 about how people feel about each other. 
you know, so how do you, how do you get those intangibles? To me, what it really comes down to is what's going on within an organization like an infantry battalion or a rifle company? What's going on every single day from sunup to sundown? You know, how does that unit do things? How does that unit operate on a day-to-day basis, regardless, regardless of where it's in the, whether it's the field, garrison, CODIS, deployed, on ship, Okinawa, Iraq, Afghanistan, does not matter. The units that have those intangibles operate in a mature, professional manner all the time. Doesn't mean there's no one's getting their ass chewed. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that there's not a a boot in the ass sometimes somewhere, but it's a professional organization. It runs professionally. And to me, that's kind of what I've seen in the organizations that sort of had those intangibles. They developed those intangibles because they were doing things every day a certain way. It wasn't because they had a particular policy or a particular activity, but it was everything in the, in the unit was done with a sense of purpose. There was a plan behind it and there was an environment or a vibe within an organization that was professional and mature. I I also wonder how much of that intangible answer. Now I'm going to answer my own question. I'm going to try to answer my own question a little bit. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but here's what I think I'm hearing. Yeah. Because when, when I hear names like Lefebvre, Alfred, Sullivan, you, Stout, you're talking about big personalities there. There is not a shrinking wallflower anywhere in that list of names. And so I think a lot of the intangibles that that people need to figure out how to grasp is the human element of leading an organization. And we have all of our JD did type buckles and all of those leadership traits and principles, and we got them. But sometimes those are just pieces of paper with words on them. And it takes a certain emotional quotient, whatever psychologists and psychiatrists call these things these days. I'll just call it, you know, you've got the juice, right? You, you've got that big personality that can come in and command the attention of men and women and form them into a cohesive unit where they all feel good about what they're doing every single day. Some people have it. Some people don't. Some people have a little bit of it, not enough. But that list of names in 3.8, I think they all had it. And I just wonder how much of – and then you talk about your toxic environment, but I only heard you talk about one person. It's just amazing to me how much of the human dynamic comes into play in leadership. There's no really – there's no formal training on it. Right? There's nobody at TBS saying like, let me tell you how to be a good guy. It doesn't happen. And so when I hear the reason I was kind of digging in on the intangibles is because I was, I just wish that there was something that we, you and I, us collectively, the whole project could tell listeners and be like, you know, here's some things that you should really focus on that maybe don't get talked about in TBS, EWS, command and staff, SAW, War College. I, yeah. I, yeah, I just don't know. That's why I was, that was the genesis of the question was. I think everybody sort of knows like what's acceptable behavior and, and what the ideal looks like. I think some people are are more are more suited from a personality perspective. I also think that a lot, you know, from one one thing that I've seen is that a, a people that are really really good leaders, a lot of them are they study their profession, they study leadership, they read, you know, and when they and when they take over an organization, they're the kinds of people that have a plan. You know, they're just not happy to be there. They're just not grabbing the flag and and are and are happy to to have made it to the that particular level that they've got a They've thought about what they're getting ready to do, and they've got a plan to do it. Those are the people that I think are generally, you know, more suited for the, you know, that particular opportunity, and and do better. That was the answer I was looking for. 
that's a huge component of the intangible. And and you've said the word trust four or five times now. Every time you said it, I went back and circled it on my notepad here. And I, I also think that's one of the huge components of, of the intangibles, right? Because you land on a ship as a brand new second lieutenant, and you're going in and doing an embassy reinforcement with Dale Alford as your company commander, who doesn't know you. None of your Marines know you. Somehow you have to develop trust, and you did. He trusted in you, and you trusted in him, and you didn't even know each other. And somehow that that happens between people, and that's a, it's a skill. And I think you're right about studying your profession, reading, having a plan. Those things accumulate to generate the trust between human beings. To me, I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways. And I'll say this. I think the generation of people that are out there at the company level, I'll even call battalion and down now, these days in the Marine Corps, they are so much more studied and well-read than I think my generation was. I mean, we've read the books that we were told to read, but we didn't have the internet or, or anything like that. I mean, if you found a great book, it was because somebody told you about it. And that was kind of it. I just think that the way lieutenants, captains, battalion commanders are studying their profession is way more vast than when I grew up. Maybe just the general evolution of things, but you finish up your company command and now, boom, you're at TBS, right? And I know you did some, I don't know if they call it fac ad. You know, you were part of the instruction group. I did a couple of years as the maneuver section head, uh, which is basically the tactics section of the basic school. And then I did a, I got an opportunity to lead a, a company of lieutenants going through training and then the, the warrant officer company as they went through the warrant officer basic course. Okay, so you just had this really formative experience of a, of a bad command environment, grueling combat, injured Marines, watching. I, I love the story about your first sergeant because I, I say this all the time. Like that is unconventional thinking to solve a conventional problem like the donkey, the mule, getting the guy down, all that kind of stuff. That's one of the things that makes Marines so great. But now all of a sudden you're in front of a whole bunch of fresh-faced second lieutenants, don't know anything other than Suli 2 at, at OCS, right? How do you take this soda straw of an experience that you just had in combat and then widen your aperture to be able to relate to a bigger picture of, I've got all these fresh-faced second lieutenants and, and I had this very, very unique experience, but now I need to broaden my aperture and become a, a, a more widely focused leader and instructor. For me, as a, as a field grade officer at the basic school, as a, as a major, my, my responsibility was not so much focusing on lieutenants as it was focusing on captains. Okay. The captains are the, they're the center of gravity at the basic school. Right. If we do what we're supposed to do right at the basic school, it's because of the captains. They're the center of gravity. And so- where I come in, where somebody like me comes in as a major is, is to make sure the captains are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing the right way. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be mentoring the captains. I'm supposed to be you know, supervising the captains. And everybody needs to be, everybody needs to be mentored. Everybody needs to be supervised. And our, the captains that we send to the basic school are generally very, very, very good. Yeah. But their experience, their experience has been platoon commander. Company XO. Right, because they haven't been a company commander yet, right? Right. Okay. For the ground guys, this is pre-company command. So most of the captains of the basic school have got one tour as an officer under their belt. Okay. And so they're still growing up. They're still maturing. They're still learning. They're still evolving as a, as a leader and as an officer. And I'm there to make sure that that happens the right way. Because the better that I do my job as a major there, ideally the better that job that they do when they're training and educating lieutenants. And so that's kind of where, you know, I think the majors sort of, the captains are the ones that do the mission. The majors are the ones that sort of determine how well the mission is, is accomplished based on their interactions and how they mentor and coach and supervise the captains. What were some of your challenges there in that role? The biggest challenge probably is, 
you know, the the captains the captains that are sent to the basic school, they're not they're not shrinking violets. They are strong personalities. They've all, you know, all all the captains that I was working with when I was at the basic school, they had all just come from Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, they had phenomenal records, you know, and they come with their own experiences and their own ideas on what right looks like. You know, we did, you know, our battalion did this, our battalion did this. We did attack you know, the defense this way. We did it attacks this way. So it's the, the struggle at that place, especially at that time, was keeping everybody focused on the fact that this was the, ba- the basic school. Ultimately, what's not important is how, whether we loaded the defense with the bent L or the crow's foot. But, you know, what, what, did, we, what did we impart to the lieutenants in regards to the leadership, decision making, bias for action initiative and, and discipline and continuing actions? So it's, it's trying to make sure that a bunch of young captains who've got all these phenomenal experiences can keep it all sort of make sure that we're not missing the forest for the trees and that what the basic school is doing is not pre-deployment training. We are, we are developing leaders and young officers and, and trying to understand the nuanced differences in there between that, I think, is, uh, is the hard part at least at that particular period, but it was, that was really a, a great, a great few years there. It's interesting about TBS and the, and the captains that go there. I've been down there a couple of times. I had Colonel McClam on as a guest. I've been to a mess night and I've been to a couple of periods of instruction. First of all, the place doesn't look anything like when you and I went through it. No. The only building that still remains there is our old armory, which is like, I think a supply building now, but yeah. uh, it's phenomenal what they've done with that facility. But one of the things that I recognize about the captains down there, they will all invariably say something that sounds very similar to this. So every captain here wants to get out. And I'm like, well, no kidding. You've got the best 10% of the Marine Corps sitting here as captains. I'm like, I don't know if the amount of people getting out at TBS equates to like the amount of people that are getting out across the fleet. But then there's then there's the lieutenants, right? So you're a major and you're and you're a new major. And so you're you're basically, you know, months, if not maybe a year removed from where they are in their careers as a rank, not not experience-wise, but as rank. And then, and then you've got all these great captains that are there, but I'm wondering if there's some common traits that are shared by either the non-performing or the poor-performing captains. Because, of course, you're always going to have your 10%. Even if it's the 10% of the best there, there's still going to be a 10%. Any common factors there that you saw that contributed to maybe some underperformance? I'd say one thing that probably got under my skin a little bit um, with certain captains was that they looked at the lieutenant like the the lieutenants like they were the enemy. Mm-hmm. And I, know, I think, don't think they did that intentionally. I think it was almost that these new second lieutenants, they come across in the field or in the classroom maybe as kind of as nasty and they don't know anything. And I'm having to explain everything to them. And it's like, guys, they're second lieutenants. They were in OCS last week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're not supposed to know anything right now. Take it easy. So again, it kind of goes back to you know, what we talked about earlier with, you know, the passion is always there at those with those captains. Sometimes there's a, maybe just too much emotions, too much emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and ideally, again, field grade officers who should be be able to kind of navigate that a little bit better, should be a little bit more mature, need to be need to make sure that they're in a position to, you know, to assess that and and to coach those captains through that. How about comparing and contrasting that with your time as a, the commanding officer of a warrant officer company. What was that like? Yeah, it was awesome. One thing the captains have the advantage of when they tell the lieutenant something is that the lieutenants probably don't know better. Mm-hmm. I always told the captains at the basic school that, you know, hey, listen, 
you guys realize, you guys know that you can tell the lieutenants anything and that they're going to probably believe you. But the warrant officers are not going to just believe you automatically. Uh, there's going to probably be some warrant officer in your platoon, no matter what you're talking about, that knows the information that you're that you're that you're trying to pass. And so if you don't, if you're not on your game with the warrant officers, they're going to sniff you out pretty quickly, right? A lot more quickly than the lieutenants would be able to. And so. You've got to you. The warrant officer basic course is only three months, but the the captains when they when they're if they're the SPCs or if they're one of the uh, the captains that they're at the schoolhouse that's that's teaching the the warrant officers, they have to really they kind of have to bring their A game when you teach the warrant officers because a lot of some of them know better and they and they've had their own experiences in the Marine Corps. They've got their own ideas about leadership. Again, they've they've seen enough where they've got opinions on everything, and so they're not going to just hit the I believe button. If just because some captain who's got one tour under their belt is is telling them something. So to me, it requires the captains in general at the basic school to kind of raise their game a bit uh, with, with that with that company of warrant officers. It's, good, it's a fun time. I'm curious if your time at TBS overlapped with then Colonel Alford when he was the TBS CO. I, I had already, uh, I think I had already moved on to either uh, uh, Command and Staff College or SAW when, by the time he took over. I just, I think I just missed him. What other moments did you have that were those aha formative moments from your time at the basic school in addition to what you already talked about? One thing that I saw at the basic school while I was there that I don't know if I had seen before, but definitely has stuck with me was that after my first year, the CEO of the basic school switched out and, and another gentleman took over. So we went from the first CEO that I that I had uh, for a year at the basic school was was a gentleman named Colonel Royal Mortensen, just an absolutely phenomenal officer. And then he was replaced by by Colonel George Smith, who just, I think, mm-hmm. he just retired as a as a lieutenant general. And so from my perspective, we went from an awesome CO to another awesome CO. But what I watched over the second and third year while General Smith was there was that he, he wasn't he was making some changes. But he wasn't trying to, in my opinion, he wasn't trying to fix something that was broken. He was trying to fine tune something that, from my perspective, was already working fairly well from where I sat. And so it, it was, an, you know, a lot of times you see people come in and, they, and they, they may take over an organization that's not functioning very well. And so they make a lot of changes because uh, they're, they're just trying to get the place back on track. Mm-hmm. That's not what I witnessed while I was there. But I did watch is, the, is, is that Colonel Smith came in. And did begin to make some things that I think were just more in line with how he felt about probably how the organization should operate and or based on his own experiences. But it didn't it didn't stop the organization from obviously doing what I thought it was already doing pretty well, which was training and educating lieutenants. So it was kind of watching kind of an organization go from really, really good CO to really, really good CO, some change occurring, but not not because the place was broken, but because the, the, the next gentleman in charge wanted to see things just done a differently in a different way, but the organization was still just as effective. Did you realize that right away or was, is, that an, is that a reflection? I think I realized some of that right away. Uh, didn't, at least from where I was sitting, it, I could see some of that happening probably fairly quickly. And then a lot of it is probably reflection as well. Right. Because I mean, every time somebody new comes into any organization, there's that fear of changing. There's that comfort with yeah. the status quo. And then there's the frustration that goes along with changing something, even if it's right or wrong, or like you said, fine tuning, it can be interpreted as, oh, this is such a pain in the ass. And so I was, I was kind of curious if it, if that was more of a reflection, because I've had those reflections myself where in the moment, I'm like, this is so wrong. 
And I look back, I'm like, yeah, I kind of get it now. We're getting to your Mew time too. So I, I, you know, I'm sure that you'll have some, some comments there and I'll have some very similar questions there, but so you ended up going to school, but you also went to the School of Advanced Warfighting or SAW, as some of us refer to it as. And I'm curious, why should officers strive to attend that course? And what did you learn from that that was really formative, especially leading into your your next time coming up on your battalion command time? I didn't intend to go to SAW. I was at Command and Staff College. It's 2009, 2010. I had already been a battalion operations officer, and then I had gone to TBS, so I'd done a B-billet, and I went to command staff and knocked out my my, my PME, and I, I kind of figured that I was going to go back to the fleet and go be a battalion XO, and you know we're in the middle of a war, and I need to get back to the fleet, and I figured I'd just go right back to an infantry battalion, until, and that was until my monitor told me that wasn't going to happen, that I had already had my operational time as a major, and that going back to a battalion was not an option. So I, when I, when I heard what the options were, I'm like, okay, I'm putting in a saw application because the options, the options post-command staff did not sound like something I wanted to do. So I put a saw application in the, the, over the next couple of days. And I will tell you, I sure am glad I did. It was the single best education experience that I've had in the Marine Corps uh, or I've had in the United States military. It was a phenomenal year. If I had to f- describe why there's probably a couple reasons, but probably the main reason is it's the student body. You know, everybody's got to put in an application. Everyone's got an interview to be there. So it definitely attracts a, a group of a group of st- pr- prospective students that are looking forward to a, an extremely rigorous year uh, academically and are interested in their profession. They're interested in doing a lot of work. And, and that is that creates a very, very interesting and I think beneficial environment when it comes to seminar is that you just got a bunch of people that are all getting after it. There was nobody, there's nobody not doing the work at Saw from, from what I remember. Everybody is is getting the reading done. Everybody's coming to seminar ready to go. It is, it was a very, very, very awesome experience. And I felt like a different, I felt like a different, better officer after that year. I was like a, I, you could almost something like, I, you could almost feel it when I was doing my payback tour, I immediately after saw, I'm in, I'm in Afghanistan on the division staff. And I'm like, I'm thinking, I just kind of remember, I'm thinking about things a bit more critically, a bit more deeply. And I just thought that I trace it back to that school year, which was, a, I thought a, a really, really a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And it's on the tail end of command and staff, right? You roll right from command and staff into SAW. Yeah. So you're already in the mo. You've already done. I mean, command and staff is a, is is a rigorous academic environment in terms of reading and preparing. And so the people who are applying are probably saying like, "Hey, I just did a year of that. I love it. I want to keep doing it more." There's probably that filter there too of the people who are like, "I'm done with this." I. Yeah. I got to imagine when you say people are there because they really want to be there, it's probably because they, they already know what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. I mean, there's no, it's no, uh, no secret how much work it is. What skill set did you come out of that school with specifically? And, and why should anybody listening to this that's in command and staff right now consider that extra year, especially if they could go back to the fleet? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, the skills I think you walk out of there with, I, I don't know if, it's really super easy to quantify. Uh, I do think you leave there a better, a better thinker or more critical 
deeper thinker. I think you're a better writer when you leave. I think you're a better, you know, a better communicator, you know, both, both uh, written and orally. Uh, so I think there's, there's some skills like that. I just, I just kind of found after saw that I thought about things maybe a bit more, a bit more clearly and a bit more critically and a bit more deeply. And, you know, you're, you're, you're developing some planning skills along the way, which I think, you know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we don't understand how well command at the 05 and the 06 level is based on, on your ability to plan and plan well and kind of like think forward in time and kind of create, you know, be able to kind of establish a vision on, on where you think an organization is going and, and developing a kind of a roadmap and a plan to kind of get the organization there. And I think saw again, I think saw sort of kind of helps helps develop some of those skills that I think do translate well at the 05 and 06 level. You know, like, hey, if I'm gonna be on a payback tour for three years, am I not, am I gonna be not eligible for command? And if that's yeah. what you're telling guys, some really, really good officers that should go are not gonna go. And it just consistently they make these little modified changes every year. And it, it confuses a lot of prospective candidates because they can't trust the process. Great point. Because if if somebody said to me, hey, you just finished up command and staff college, which you had to do to get promoted and move on to your career, and you can elect to go to SAW, but it could take you out of the running for battalion command, I'd be like, well, what do you think I've been working on for the past seven years? I, I, wanna, yeah. I want battalion command. Like, I'm not yeah. taking myself out of the running for that. That's, that's kind of like what everybody wants to do that's been in for 15 years. So at this point, you know, you'd, you'd spend some time on the division staff that you said, but you're heading into battalion command. You're going to take over one six. I mean, are you hitting your stride at that point? Like, are you, I got to imagine that when you're walking into a battalion command, that's sort of like you're hitting your stride. You know, it was, again, you know, kind of surreal to think back, to, you know, to my first battalion commander, Paul Lefevre. And then when I was a battalion operations officer, my battalion commander is Bill Journey. And, you know, just kind of, you know, reaching that level where I had seen them operate, yeah, at a, at a phenomenal level was just again kind of surreal, kind of intimidating, but definitely something that I I really uh, was excited about. Uh, and as I you know kind of left battalion operations officer time, I was something it, you know being a potentially being an infantry battalion commander was something that I thought quite a bit about during my time at TBS, mm-hmm. during my time at command staff, and saw uh, it was it was uh, it was a level that I really really hoped I was going to be fortunate enough to, to be able to, to achieve. And I was extremely gratified by the opportunity to, to command one six. It was a really, really phenomenal time to, in, my, in my career. Similar to the questions I was asking you about your command team with the lieutenants when you were a company commander, I, I'd like to ask you almost the same questions. You're now your company commanders and their command team with their first sergeant, your staff, your XO, your, your sergeant major. And how what what was it that you... At that point, you're like, I've learned all this stuff. So here's how I am going to handle the leadership of this unit. Because I, I look at a battalion as the first time that you can't really control everything. Right. Absolutely. You know, the I, I think the biggest, the big difference is from company command to battalion command is that battalion command, you are definitely leading quite a bit of the battalion through influence each day. You're not leading everybody direct. You're not even leading everybody directly. You can do that as a company commander. You can kind of you know, put the company on your back and and kind of be there for for everything. At the battalion level, that's that's not happening. And so the time invested in building the team, the time invested in developing the team, uh, the time invested in connecting 
connecting with individuals on a personal level, developing that connection between you know, the battalion commander and company commanders, between the battalion commander and battalion staff, the amount of time dealing with you know, MMOA and MMEA and division and regiment in regards to personnel issues, all of that time, in my opinion, is, is time well spent because there is nothing that I think leads to success more than just having the right people on the team. And good teams have a lot of good players. And so if you want a good team and if you want good players, you got one, go out and get some. And then two, coach coach everybody up. Right. And then did 1-6 go out as a MU? Were you a BLT commander or we did you not do a MU as the battalion commander? Yeah. So we we did, uh, we were the BLT for the 22nd MU. And that workup was 2013. The deployment was 2014. Uh, and I was, I, I, I got a little bit lucky. I, I got to have the battalion for a full two and a half years. There was a quite a bit of dwell time before we locked on for the MU. So I think I had the battalion for about a year and a half before we went to, before we started the MU workup. And so it was, that was a pretty, that was a pretty interesting time because we, we had, the battalion had come back from Afghanistan. And so we were going through, we were going through a significant amount of transition post that Afghanistan deployment. They had gone on a deployment. They were in Afghanistan uh, when I was on the division staff in Afghanistan. They were in Afghanistan. Uh, and so coming back from that deployment, there was a lot of transition going on. And it, prob- it probably took a little while to kind of get to get the boat pointed in the direction that, that we wanted it. And you know, we, needed some, uh, we needed some people to come in and, and help out, which that happened eventually. Uh, but once we got going, once we got going in the direction that we wanted, we were really cooking with gas at that point. And we had a phenomenal uh, service level exercise to Yuma, Arizona for five weeks. We, that, we got to do that right before the MU workup. And then we, I think we, we were kind of hitting our stride as a unit as we, as we went right into the MU workup and into the deployment. It had a really, really successful deployment. And just overall, really, really great opportunity. And, uh, but, but probably the, the single biggest reason was just a lot of good people all over the place. A lot of good small unit leaders from the company commander, company first sergeants on down. Was one six still shaking off some of the drama from your company command time, or had that pretty much had there been a complete turnover of everybody, and that was in their rearview mirror? That was about ten years. That was about nine years prior to me getting there as the battalion commander. Oh, okay. What they were shaking off was was two back to back Afghanistan deployments in, that were very very close to each other. If I if I remember correctly, the most recent Afghanistan deployment before before I got there as the battalion commander, I think they had had their deployment pushed to the left as part of the Afghanistan surge. And so they had to deploy earlier than they planned. And so they were getting, they got like three company commanders at Mojave Viper right before deployment. And so if you can kind of imagine a battalion that's getting ready to go to Afghanistan, they're getting some of the most important leaders in the battalion. They are getting them at Mojave Viper. That's not like what you want to have happen. But that's not the battalion commander's fault. That's just the system, you know, not being able to react probably as, as nimbly as we needed to. But again, they had their deployment pushed up and that was not, I, you know, so you think you're deploying at this time, you think you're deploying in say June, next thing you know, you're deploying in February, everything changes and nothing, no, no, the system is just not able to react that quickly sometimes. And I think, so some of that, they had, they had, had a, you know, a real tough deployment uh, before that, and then they had their uh, the next deployment pushed to the left, and they had a t- another tough deployment. So kind of back to back tough deployments 
with a lot of, you know, very kinetic, a lot of, just a lot of action. Mm-hmm. And so coming out of that, there was some, there was a lot of transition and a lot of stuff that needed to be sort of shaped out before we could get the, the, the boat going in the right direction again. And it sounds like you had that one and a half years of dwell time. So I'm assuming that that sort of accordion gave you and the battalion some breathing room, but two and a half years is a long time. So in that course of time before you said you did the Yuma exercise and that was really great. There must have been some changing of the guard in terms of your junior leaders, like your company commanders and first sergeants, maybe even Sergeant Major XO. There must have been a lot of turnover going on during that time, just as the natural progression of people's careers, right? There was there was a ton. So look, I think lucky for me, my, my Sergeant Major took over about the month after I did. And then we spent the next two and a half years together. And that was phenomenal. My XO, I had to give up my XO to go on a mid team. And so I, you, I was left, you're left without an XO for about, I want to say about almost a year and a half. And then unfortunately I had to replace my operations officer. So there, for, for a time, there was no, there was no major in the battalion. And we had a lot of company commanders kind of check out when I got there we had a bunch of that. We had about three or four lieutenants that were running companies. Good, really, really good guys. But but that's not the way it's supposed to be done. You're, you know, in the Marine Corps, rifle companies are usually are usually run by captains that are post EWS, not a brand new captain who's getting ready to leave, uh, not a senior first lieutenant. There's a difference. And so, you know, but we had we had some guys coming in and some and, and in that group of guys coming in. There were some real, real all-stars. I had a, had a new operations officer come in who I had worked with at the basic school. He was one of my SPCs, Tom Carey, uh, my S4 officer, uh, who also who also kind of filled in as my XO. Sean Meyer had been one of my uh, SPCs at the basic school. Had, had some great company commanders to check in, Dan Granger, Pat Holland, and a few others. And once we got the right people on deck, again, the boat slowly started to go in the direction that we needed it to go in. And, you know, those guys got on deck and really kind of be able to kind of grab their companies by the reins and sort of bend them to their will, so to speak. And we had a, and we had a lot of new blood checking in a lot of we had a, all new lieutenants. So when we when we deployed, all our lieutenants were on their first deployment as lieutenants. So all the senior first lieutenants that were there when I got there, they didn't have the legs to make the next deployment. So our company XOs, we had to grow our company XOs ourselves. Our independent platoon commanders, we had to grow those independent platoon commanders ourselves. Those were they were second lieutenants that were just a class or two ahead of our rifle platoon commanders. As a group, the lieutenants were absolutely phenomenal. Probably kind of pound for pound, probably the strongest, the strongest group of leaders in the battalion were the lieutenants. Do you think that was a function of collectively them together? Cause because every group of this is what we were talking about before with the LPA, like Every collection of lieutenant, that's a big group of numbers wise, a lot of lieutenants in a battalion. Do you think it was the culture of the group or was it a product of IOC or was it just, it was just that time in our 20 year deployment history? What what do you think contributed to that? I I have my theories on it. I think one, the way we assign MOSs at that time was better than we did it when I was a lieutenant. So I, I, I know that at IOC, when I was a lieutenant, there were some lieutenants who infantry was their last choice or was their 20th choice. And so, you know, they get to IOC and this is, they're on, they're there. They wanted to do something as far from infantry as possible, but yet here they are at IOC trying, trying to do the best job that they can. You know, when I was there as a major at the basic school, 
it was very rare that somebody was getting something outside their top five. If you can match up the right man and woman for the right job, I think more time than not, you're just going to get a better, that, that's going to be better for that lieutenant. And that's going to be better for the unit that they're assigned to. And it's probably going to be better for the, the Marines that they're in, that they're leading as opposed to somebody who's in something that they know they didn't probably have an aptitude for or were cut out for. So I think that's that's part of it. I also think that at some point, the attrition rate at IOC really ramped up. And so in order to, to successfully make it through the course, you had to really, really do well. And I think I was the benefit of that as a battalion commander is that I didn't, I, there, was, there was not a single rifle platoon commander who couldn't run a, a platoon attack day night. I was, I was pretty satisfied with every single one of those second lieutenants running a, run a platoon attack. When they did it, there was not a lot of tea sucking on my part. Uh, I was very, very happy with the product that yeah. IOC that IOC was producing. And again, you take some well-trained at the basic level uh, second lieutenants, and then you match them up with with really, really good company commanders. And then, boom! These these young officers, then they just they're, they're they they just take off from a from a from a growth perspective. Yeah, I think that that may have summarized what I was trying to get at before too about just the knowing your profession of the current generation or even that generation and, and my generation, your generation, just there's, there's been a lot of growth in the professionalism and tactical prowess of a Lieutenant. than when we came in, it's not good or bad. I'm just saying organizations evolve and ours has evolved really, really well and in a positive way. Now, so what years was this uh, that you had the battalion one six middle of 2012, to the beginning of 2015. I think one of the things that I glean that is difficult for from a battalion command perspective is you are leading and probably for the first time in your career truly managing an organization, right? Like company command, I know you have your CMR and stuff, but like you're now managing sections, the intel, ops, logistics, comm. I mean, you're you're these are sections, so there's this component of management that goes along. Or what did you do to split up your time between managing an organization and providing the guidance to the people who are capable of leading those sections. And then over here on the side with your company commanders, mentoring them tactically. What did you do to kind of split up between those two things? From a planning perspective, when I'm coming up with, with what I think, you know, my plan is and my vision, it's one, it's one that's based in part upon a sense of balance that we, as, as a unit, we need to be pretty good at everything. We don't need to be great at some things and horrible at others. We need to be pretty good at everything. I want to have a B average. I don't want to have like three A's, uh, a C, and an F. I'd rather have all B's. <laughs> right. And so if, if you can understand what that looks like philosophically, then that sort of philosophy, it trickles down into the quarterly training plan or the long-range training plan. For the battalion and the companies is that we're not we're not spending all our time on this. We're spending some of our time on going to the field and being good tactically. And then we've got to spend the right amount of time being good from a material readiness perspective, from an administrative perspective, from a medical dental perspective, from a family readiness perspective. And so it's about achieving sort of some balance across the organization in regards to some of those different areas of functional readiness. And then it's balancing sort of that functional readiness. With sort of some of the, again, with ensuring that we're developing the intangibles in that organization. And again, some of that has to be reflected in things that we do and how we do things in the battalion. If, if you don't want to ever have a mess night, 
or a dining in, you don't have to. But you're also missing an opportunity to teach some heritage and some of the traditions in the Marine Corps. If you don't want to spend any time having a unit PME program, no one's going to gig you on it. But you're also missing great opportunities to, to develop people from an education perspective. You know, reading some books, having some book discussions, doing some TDGs, taking the officers and going to Gettysburg and, and spending a couple of days in Gettysburg, learning about our profession, talking about our profession, reading, not to mention some developing some camaraderie. So if you don't want to do those things, you don't have to do those things, but I think you're missing out. And so it's about finding the right balance between all of those things that you're trying to do within an organization. I also think battalion commands the first, probably the first time, well, maybe not you because you're a TBS, but for most battalion commanders, maybe the first time that they're the reviewing officer on officer fitness reports. I'm wondering if you had any lessons learned from that or, or any experiences that you could share on that. Like, did you see adverse coming across your desk? Did you see, did you see some velvet knives come across your desk and go back to the commander and say, Hey, listen, you need to pick a side on this. Like it's either a bad fitness report or a good fitness report. I'm just kind of curious what your experiences were with officer development as it related to Revo or actually Stefan COs too. Myself and Sergeant Major spent so much time talking to each other about you know, how our officers and staff and COs are doing, how our first sergeants are doing, how our company commanders are doing, how they're doing together. And then we're spending so much time talking to, he's talking to first sergeants, I'm talking to company commanders almost on a daily basis on how people are doing. Hey, tell me, how's Chris doing? How's Mo doing? You know, how's Josh doing? How's Chad doing? You know, he's talking to his first sergeants about, hey, how's staff sergeant so-and-so doing? How's so-and-so doing? You know, so by the time, by the time fitness reports roll around, absolutely zero surprises. You know, we've, we've already spent like hours and hours and hours talking about people, making sure that they're working with the right, the right staff and CO, making sure that the right, the right corporals are getting meritoriously promoted to sergeant, you know, making sure that again, we had, we were, we were so involved in the people, the people part of being a battalion commander and a battalion sergeant major. That's where we, that's, I mean, we probably spent too much time during that stuff. That That's where we felt like. We could make like a, a, you know, that was the the area where it was going to be critical to to our success was if we got the people part right, you know, the rest would kind of fall into place. And so we spent a lot of time talking to each other about that and a lot of time talking to our subordinates about that, a lot of time thinking about how we could develop people and uh, and grow better small unit leaders within the organization. Yeah. Did you see anybody pull up out of an absolute nosedive and, and save it and go on to have success in their career? There are people in the Marine Corps right now that are doing well that I thought would be out by now. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So the answer is yes. And I would just say that, I, I, again, I, I think one thing that we recognized when we got there, the area where the battalion needed the most help was really at the NCO level. And we, we had to think hard about, we had to think really hard about how we were going to create an NCO core that we could really kind of look at and go, that is the backbone of the, of the battalion. And that was, and again, platoon leadership has a role to play in that, company leadership has a role to play in that. Where me and the Sergeant Major came in on that was, for one, we, we, we towed a pretty tight line on NCO misconduct. You know, there was a lot of NCO misconduct when we got there and we had to put it, we had to get, figure and get our, our arms around that. The other thing that we had to figure out how to get our hands on was there were people getting recommended for promotion 
that just had no business being recommended for promotion. The problem is they hadn't done anything wrong. And so nobody felt like they could non-rec somebody if they hadn't done something wrong. When in reality, if someone's not demonstrating the potential for the next grade, you can non-rec them. So we had to, we had to kind of turn the idea of what it took, what it was going to take to be an NCO. And if you were in a corporal, what it was going to take to be a sergeant, we had to kind of turn that on its head a little bit in, in our battalion, where we thought was make sure let's put the bar where it's supposed to be. And we just, I think we, we really had to get company commanders and first sergeants on board and going, hey, you know, if you don't think they're ready to be promoted, then don't recommend them. And if they're not recommended, right, then they're not getting promoted, regardless of what the cutting score is. And so let's just make sure we're not using that vindictively, but let's make sure that we're using that to sort of coach and mentor every day. If we can do this month after month, over time, we're going to get a better, a better core of NCOs. And that's exactly what happened. By the time we, we were leaving, the, the kids that had checked in as PFCs or picking up corporals, we were very, very, very uh, happy with the, the core of, of NCOs that we were ploying with and turning over as we were both leaving, as we were leaving, uh, leaving the battalion after our deployment. And that's great to hear. I, I'm curious if some of that had to do with the fact that you had those two back-to-back deployments that were really pushed up against each other. Maybe some of the NCO discipline was just a function of you know, the deployment cycles, the not enough dwell time, rebelling against, you know, just bad operational tempo. And I think it was a tough operational tempo. I think it was a lot of revolving leaders. Like I said, company commanders coming in at the last moment. That's, that's not a, that's not a recipe for success, but that's not anything the battalion can really do anything about. That's just, you're, you're sort of a, you're a casualty of sort of like the process sometimes. I think also sometimes we we have almost a too narrow of a view of what a good NCO or what a good small unit leader is. Sometimes it's simply based off MOS proficiency, where I think in reality, I think the definition needs to be a bit more comprehensive. And so you need somebody that's got a higher level of maturity, better judgment, better decision-making, you know, not just having spent two years in the MOS and they've got, they've reached a, a pretty high level of MOS proficiency. There's got to be some things that are, that are, that are on top of that that really make a good, to really be a good NCO. I actually think being an NCO is very, very difficult because you're, you're training to become an NCO. Okay. You can go to corporal's course and I get it. And I'm not saying that corporal's course is, is, is bad. I'm just saying it's, it's couldn't be anywhere near complete as it needs to be to actually be a leader. I, I've said this on other podcasts before, but like non-commissioned officer, there is the word officer in that acronym. And if you want to parse the difference between what a commission and a non-commission is, we could do that. But at the end of the day, you're still an officer, just like a lieutenant is. In my mind, that's how I look at it. But their training is through osmosis and OJT and watching the NCOs that were there before them teach them how to do it. And if there's bad NCOs teaching these young kids how to be NCOs, you're going to end up with bad NCOs too. I think it's a really difficult thing to create that quality NCO in the Marine Corps. And it really takes a lot more hands-on supervision than most people probably think it does. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. You know, what what I would say is, you know, if I look at NCB, my interpretation of MCDP one, you know that 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 was the that provided the underpinning for for my vision as a battalion commander. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you think about what kind of leadership is required at small unit level to be able to operate according to MCDP one warfighting, that is completely at odds with the demographics of an infantry battalion, which is you got a ton of a ton mm-hmm. of young a ton of young leaders, and so. Again, if, if you want to, if you want to get, if you want to be able to move in the right direction, according to MCDP one warfighting, 
you've really got to spend a lot of time and effort in developing the the leadership, you know, the leadership and the maturity and judgment of a bunch of young Marines. So again, if you have a very narrow view of NCO leadership, you're you may not be hitting some of the you may not be emphasizing the things that you need to emphasize in order to create the type of small unit leaders that can really be operating at, you know, according to MCDB1 warfighting. You're looking for people that are 22 years old. You need them to act like they're 27. You've got 23, 24 year old lieutenants. You need them to act like they're 29. Well, how do you do that? You know, you got to mm-hmm. you got to be running running the organization in a certain way every single day. And now we're talking about a large organization. You know, you got it with a lot of people on board with that with that philosophy in order to get there. What me and the Sergeant Major are doing is we're just trying to make sure that that's happening everywhere across a large organization. Right. I wonder if there's this tug of war that still exists too, because if you get a bunch of people in a room, you'll probably hear something that sounds similar to this. We need you to act like mature NCOs. And then the NCOs will say, well, then you need to treat us like NCOs. And then there's, well, you need to act like them. Well, then you need to treat us like them. And it goes back and forth between those two things. Now, a lot of that has to do with age too. I, I don't know how you how you address that, but that seems to be the tug of war that I've always heard between and and I have a question that's going to come up for you on that exact topic when we talk about your Mew command time. But I know your battalion command; it was two and a half years. It was a combat tour. It was Mew. Did you deploy as a Mew and then immediately go into Afghanistan, or was it was there any sort of traditional component to that Mew? So on that deployment, uh, we did not go to Afghanistan. On that deployment. Uh, in 2014, we were in the Middle East. We were in the Middle East for most of the deployment. We had a rifle company. One of our companies was in the embassy in Baghdad for maybe a month or two during embassy reinforcement. We did a couple other, we had a couple other things that we supported in Iraq. But other than that, it was just kind of like a, kind of like your typical fifth fleet crisis response oriented new deployment. Operated from ship, got ashore in Djibouti, got ashore in Kuwait, uh, Oman, Jordan, stuff like that. So now progressing into your time as a Mew commander, I'm curious because my experiences with a Mew were four. Sh- it was a four ship R because we had the old LPH. Everybody was dispersed across the ships, and I always thought to myself, the greatest thing. I was an Anglico deck commander, so I'll have to ask you some Anglico questions. But I was an Anglico deck commander, and I was off on one of the smaller ships by myself. And it was great because I was off by myself and I didn't have a boss and I wasn't even on the ship that the Mew command element was on. So I basically got to run my own show every single day, which was which was fantastic. I often found myself curious, how lonely is command for the Mew commander? Because I'd go into the wardroom every night and I'd play spades with the other captains and lieutenants or yuck it up with them or sit around and smoke cigars out in the on the flight deck or something like that, you know, the fantail. And, and I was having a great time because I was surrounded by 15, 18 people that were kind of my peer group. But then I'm thinking like the Mew commander doesn't really have anybody to go play spades with and yuck it up with. Was, was there some sort of like loneliness component to being a Mew commander? Like who do you go close the door with and have a laugh about anything? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, sometimes sometimes the Commodore, sometimes my Opso. Mm-hmm. I'd say my ex. So I talked to my XO a lot, but I would talk to him on the I would talk to him on the phone because my XO uh, was on the LPD, uh, and the LPD was separated from the big deck for for about four months of our seven month deployment. But you know, gen- generally my staff, generally my, my command element staff are the people that I would probably engage with the most throughout the day. Okay, all right. I, I just kind of feel like you know I'm a social person, so if if all of a sudden yeah. I all I could hang out with were were people who were my subordinates, I think I'd I'd probably go a little crazy. But I I asked that question because I kind of want to set up. The next question, which is now we're at a part in your career or in 06's career, like 
you're out on a Mew, you've got three subordinate battalion command levels, plus some other cats and dogs in your Mew command element. But really those big three, you have the infantry battalion, the aviation squadron, and then the logistics battalion. What were some of the use, the unique challenges that you experienced as a Mew commander with having those three battalion levels commands, but you're out on three or four ships and you're you're spread out. What sort of challenges did you experience with that and what did you do to overcome those? I think what's what's interesting about a Mu Magtaf is, you know, you have a Mu command element that just operates that through most of its life cycle is just by itself. It doesn't have any subordinate organizations. Mm-hmm. It's just a it's just a Mu staff of about 90 people. When you get to the workup, the Mu command element grows from about 90 to about 250. Then you get the rest of the MAGTAF and you grow from about 250 to about 2300. And you go from just being an 06 command element by itself to now being responsible for three 05 commands. And now these 05 commands, what's important to understand, they already come with their own unit identities and their own organizational cultures. Mm-hmm. They, all, they all come, you know, McCree evaluated and McCree certified. You know, they already come very, very well trained and fully man trained and equipped. They are they are kind of done growing from, you know, from a from the basic phase is over. So what we need to do now is is kind of put all those pieces together and and make them uh, make a marine uh, kind of, a you know, an integrated and efficient marine air ground task force. And that's what the workup is. And so you you get organizations that are already kind of made, already formed, already trained already have an identity and a kind of a, and they already have a way of doing business. And you now, the, the, the challenge is, is as a command element, you got to take those three organizations and put that whole thing together and then, and then link that whole thing up with the United States Navy and the amphibious ready group and make all that work pretty efficiently. That's the, that's sort of the challenge is, is kind of putting the MAGTAF together and, and making it operate and plan and execute uh, in an integrated fashion, and then take that Marine Air Ground Task Force team and now integrate that with the United States Navy team. That's the fun part. Of, that's the fun part. That's the challenge. And, 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 and I thought that was something that we had to sort of, you know, we obviously worked our way through and got, I thought, pretty good at. You get out there on deployment and now you're operating, you're going to be operating almost, you can almost assume, in an extremely dispersed environment. So we had, we had one ship, the LPD, in the Mediterranean for four months. We had the other two ships, the LHD and the LSD, operating along the west coast of Norway, even above the Arctic Circle, and in the Baltic Sea for the first four months. And then the second half of the deployment, the last three months, all three ships were in the Baltic Sea. So in some ways, similar to a new deployment from the 1990s, where we were operating under Sixth Fleet, Mm -hmm. but we're in Sixth Fleet completely different than the old days when we used to be you know, operating in the Med, maybe along the west coast of Africa, now we are we are almost almost completely operating up and around Scandinavia, the high north, and in, and really a lot of stuff in the Baltic Sea. Uh, we deployed about two weeks after the uh, the Russians invaded Ukraine, so a lot to do up in the uh, in the Baltics with our uh, with our NATO allies and partners, the Finns, the Swedes. They were you know we were doing stuff with the Finns and Swedes about the same time that they were announcing their intention to join NATO. So pretty exciting time uh, to be operating in that part of the world, you know, not doing crisis response per se, but really kind of focused on campaigning and competition uh, as part of a fleet and as part of a combatant command 
and trying to do things via V the, the Russians during an era of great power competition. So I'm assuming some cold weather stuff if you're up there in Norway. So we were, uh, we were probably up at the, above the Arctic Circle. You know, if they have a summer, we were probably there right before it. So kind of on the tail end of the bad weather. Still a, an, extremely, an extremely challenging environment to operate in. We were operating uh, ashore in Norway. We were also operating from the ship. Uh, with our aviation element. We had aircraft uh, shore-based and we had aircraft operating afloat. Operating aircraft in that environment, even at that part of the year, is an extremely, extremely, you know, stressful environment. You know, got to really pay close attention to the weather. The weather changes from from, from valley to valley, from fjord to fjord. You've got to be on your toes. Can't take anything for granted up there when you're operating, especially in the air. So ice, freezing conditions, or just cold? The temps are the te- it's it's still cold. It's still snowing a little bit, but it's really it's really kind of like visibility and you know a quick snowstorm or fog. And again, you, it could be it can be clear as day over the ship, and then you fly inland, and then you've got uh, either a a quick snowstorm or fog, or just clouds, and now you can't see anything. Uh, and you've got, you know, you got aircraft that are operating in these, in these valleys, and so it could be a fairly stressful from, you know, depending on where you're at. And you, again, you could go from one part of the AO, could be fine, and then you could, you could fly two minutes, and the next thing you know, you can't see anything. Yeah, I guess my line of questioning is coming from just total curiosity about, we've just spent, you know, let's just call it 20 years, fighting in the desert where everything's hot and you're not worried about cold weather training. You're not worried about freezing conditions. You're not worried about it. As a matter of fact, everybody's experience with equipment has to do with probably keeping the dust out of it and not keeping the ice off of it. Were, were you able to forecast that you were going to be operating in those conditions or did the entire mu just have to like all of a sudden you just get the word one day, Hey, we're going up into the North Atlantic. We're going to go into some freezing conditions and we're just going to have to figure it out. Yeah. So we had a pretty good idea that we were going to be up there uh, at least in Norway uh, so we we had we had spent some time you know kind of getting the right type of gear and making sure that the Marines would have the kind of gear that they needed to to operate in that in that kind of a climate. But still, for most of the battalion, for most of the the MU, you don't really have much, if any, experience operating in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a pretty steep it's a pretty steep learning curve. We had the benefit of kind of following two MEF uh, that had just gotten done with an exercise. They left some people behind to kind of give us some pointers. And then you've got the Norwegians there who uh, obviously they're the experts. They're a gigantic help. And so as long as you, uh, you know, you're listening to the people that really kind of know how to operate in that area, you know, that's going to go a long way to mitigating a lot of risk that comes with uh, operating in that, in that type of environment. Did you have the traditional MU setup of a helo company, a boat company, and an Amtrak company, or, you know, a truck company, or how did, how did the BLT commander organize those three companies? And did you get to employ them like that in those sort of conditions? We had a helo company or a vertical assault company on the uh, LHD mm-hmm. uh, where we had our Ospreys. We had a an, essentially another vertical assault company or a helo company on the LPD where we had our 53s. Uh, and then we had a really a motorized company on the LSD because we didn't take AAVs. Uh, so we had a, we had a lot of, lot of LAVs and a lot of JLTVs and that was really kind of how another comp- that third rifle company on the LSD how they would they, how they were kind of employed uh, with our with our one LCU that we had on the L, uh, on the LSD. So that's that's kind of how the the BLT was op- was sort of uh, laid out 
from a rifle company perspective. What were some of the challenges as it related to the disbursement of all of those units and the three ships from a command and control perspective? What did you learn about command and control that you had never had an experience with before as a MU commander and maybe some lessons learned just a very high level for somebody who's either one of the subordinate 05 commanders coming into a new MU or a future MU commander, you know, some, some high level things like, wow, I, <laughs> this was new for me. And let me tell you what I learned. Yeah, that's a good question. A couple things. The first thing is, you know, when, once we figured out that the, the LPD was going to be off on its own in the Mediterranean for at least four months, we figured that out before we deployed. I guess we kind of realized that towards the end of the workup. And so at that point, we decided when we deploy and the LPD goes to the Mediterranean on its own, we're going to put the Mu Bravo Command led by the Mu XO on the LPD. For that, we had the CLB commander and his team, COT, XOT on the LPD, senior Marine on the LPD. But I was a bit more comfortable having the Bravo, the Mu Bravo command, uh, which is essentially not a, it's not, it's, it's not a great big staff. I mean, it's the Mu XO, BLT XO, sort of serving as the, the Bravo command operations officer. Got a, a comm lieutenant uh, mm-hmm. from the, the Mu staff that we put over there with them. And other than that, they're really kind of glomming on to everybody else that's already on the LPD because the LPD, especially if you put the 53s over there or, or if you have a dead of Ospreys over there, you know, you, you've got your own little mini MACTAF over there. You know, you've got a good chunk of the, of the BLT over there. Yeah, you really, it sounds like it. Yeah, you've got a good chunk of the CLB over there and you've got, you know, in our case, four CH-53. So you've got a mini MACTAF and what I wanted to make sure that we had was a slice of the new command element on top of that. And so we decided to put the Bravo command over there on the LPD. And, and I thought that was not something that we practiced in that specific configuration during the workup, but that is something that we executed on deployment. And I think it worked really well because it, it, it allowed, you know, me and the XO probably should be said that me and my XO had now spent, we, we spent three and a half years together. Me and my, my XO and my OPSO and my Sergeant Major, the four of us together had done, we did two deployments together. All four of us. We spent probably the four of us together, close to 14 years together. There was a lot of continuity, a lot of sort of everybody. The four of us were, were, were exceptionally mind melded when it came to, you know, what was, how is the new command element going to operate? How is the new commander going to think about different things? You know, nobody knew better than my XO, my Sergeant Major and my OPSO, because we had spent, along with a couple other people on the new command element, we had spent a lot of time together. And we are now on our second deployment together. And so there was a lot of, you know, inherent communications or implicit communications going on at the MU command element level, especially at the command team level. And so when I was able, when I had to take a part of that, that command team and put it over there on the LPD, that's several thousand miles away. They're not just on the other side of the Mediterranean. They are 14 steaming days away from where we are. So there's no, there's no, you know, linking up tomorrow if we have to. It's, they're a couple of weeks away. Having somebody over there that I had a, what I would consider a very good, long relationship with, my UXO, that went a long way to a kind of effective command and control of, of being in a dispersed environment. Well, he was an aviator, I'm assuming? He's a Cobra pilot. Did I understand correctly that you were able to configure the LPD before you left port, so everything, or, or did you have to make that switch on the fly or in a, in a port over in the med somewhere? Did you have to cross-deck a bunch of gear or did you go out like that? We left for deployment exactly how we went through the workup, except for the Mu Bravo command. We took the Mu Bravo command 
and we put it on the L, on the LPD for the deployment. We we had we had practiced using the Bravo command ashore during the during the mm-hmm. Mu workup, but we did not practice the Mu Bravo command working on the LPD. That's how we deployed, and that's how we executed throughout the deployment. And I thought it worked really well. Did you ever come back together as a whole Mu, or did, was it like that for most of the six months? So the the final three months of the deployment, we had a seven month deployment. The final three months. That all three ships operated in the Baltic Sea together. We still kept the Mu Bravo Command over there on the LPD, uh, but all three ships were now together in the in the Baltic Sea for the last three months. We did a we did a few exercises together. Finland, we had a great great exercise with the Finns, a good exercise with the with the Swedes, with all three ships involved. But the Mu Bravo Command operated from the LPD the whole deployment. The Mu's are kind of generating back up into what I will call a little bit more of the way they looked in the 90s than they did when they were just transporting battalions over to, to combat. There's a, a whole generation of people in the Marine Corps that haven't had the experience of Mew fun yet, and they're going to. And what I think what people who have not been on a Mew yet or uh, you know a Mew like you just had is that they don't understand what a massively fucking dangerous six months that is your operating environment i mean it, it's just it can't be replicated on land it can't really be replicated on a one or two week sock exercise or mu exercise train up and you do, you don't really get the experience until you go out there and get the experience so i'm curious if at any time during the mu you as the commander had a teeth sucking moment or where something was going wrong and you were scared to death at it just wasn't going to go right. And if you could share that, both experience and emotion, if it existed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably the most stressful periods or moments, whether it was during the workup or especially the deployment, involved uh, aviation operations. And that was due to either, well, uh, pretty much always due to weather. You know, we would just run, you would run into weather during the workup. You know, we were having a workup off the East Coast over the, you know, over the winter. Uh, so weather is a challenge. You're trying to get certain things done, and you you think you can go to a certain point, and sometimes you you can, and then sometimes you figure out the weather changed, and now we've got to we've got to be able to kind of react dynamically and either curtail things or end things early. And sometimes those lines are not ex- very clear until you're sitting right on it. And so that is that's a stressful environment. And then like I. And then, like I said a few minutes ago, with the the weather in Norway, again, it's just it was something that I don't think you can understand until you're in it and experiencing it. And this weather's coming out of the North Pole, and before you know it, you know, again, you think it's going to be, you think you're going to be okay tomorrow, and you think you're flying, and the next thing you know, the weather hits, or the weather hits in that particular valley. And now you've got to do, people have got to do things differently. And so, and I'm not always in a position to see that as the crews, as the air crews are seeing that. So you're now, you're now trusting that, you know, air crews are making the right decision. They're the ones that are experiencing it. And that's just the environment. So yeah, that's just, uh, you know, especially I think for a ground guy, you know, you, you, you're learning about aviation operations. And I like to think that I learned a lot about aviation, aviation operations, but I'm not an aviator. And so, you know, I'm learning, but I don't have the, the 25 years of experience in aviation operations like I do in ground operations. There's a lot of things that intuitively I understand about ground operations that I don't intuitively understand about aviation operations. I'm building my, my experience in my essay in that area 
which also happens to be the most stressful, probably dangerous part of what we're doing out there is the stuff that we're doing in the air. And you've lost your your right-hand man, the XO, who's the aviator that you would normally turn to and say, hey, I, I need some help making this decision. I'm assuming you just relied on the ace commander, who's probably an Osprey pilot, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, we had a phenomenal ace commander, Osprey mm-hmm. pilot, Osprey squadron commander, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Anderjack. Phenomenal, phenomenal ace commander. Great, great squadron. They really did a good job of putting that composite squadron together and kind of operating as a composite squadron. I mean, the Osprey squadron, that's 12 Ospreys in our case. But when they're a composite squadron, they're they're 29 aircraft. And so I think what you'll see sometimes is, is Osprey squadrons that have a bunch of detachments, and that's kind of how they operate. And then sometimes you're going to see an ace where it's an Osprey squadron but even though they have all those detachments, they still act like they're just one squadron. They've been able, because whatever they've done inside that squadron, they have sort of, co- you know, they've gotten cohesive enough where they, they act and talk like a squadron with five different types of aircraft, Vice and Osprey squadron with a bunch of detachments. So it's kind of a nuanced difference, but I thought VMM 263, the Thunder Chickens that we went out there with, they did a really, really good job. Of, of kind of acting and talking with one voice. And they're very, very, I thought, a very, very cohesive aviation combat element. It's interesting to me, too, because the Mew Commander, you've got all this responsibility on your shoulders, but, and I hope you take this in the context in which I'm saying it, so little of what can go wrong is actually outside of your control, right? Like You're not flying a helicopter. You're not leading a company on the ground. You are in the command center. You are approving courses of action that are then going to be executed by other subordinate junior commanders and all the responsibility lays on your shoulders, but really none of the ability to influence the micro decisions that could cause catastrophe. Any sort of lessons that you learned there about how to reconcile that, or maybe a better way to ask the question is any way to try to get that you found successful in getting subordinate commanders, not only at the O5 level, but even down at the company level and in the squadron level and at the logistics unit, to try to understand how you think and assess risk and make decisions so that they could make the decisions that you would want them to make in your presence when you're not there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it, I, to me, it really comes down to planning. And, you know, if you, if you read the, the, you know, the MC, uh, MCDP5 on planning, I think it is, uh, there's two types. There's, and the, and the, the first type or the highest level is the con- con- conceptual planning. And that's kind of like the realm of the commander. And so, you know, if, if I'm not doing that, if I'm not doing my job as a, in this case, new commander, and I'm not coming up with, with sort of my, my, I, you know, my sort of my bet T, my vision, you know, my commander's intent on how I think something is going to, how a, a particular operation is going to unfold, if I'm not doing that and I'm just waiting for the staff and the MAGTAF to kind of provide me some options, then I'm missing an opportunity to sort of, you know, provide my thoughts on risk management, on, on risk, on, you know, on different aspects where, you know, the risk management I'm going to do is not going to be when somebody's flying. It's going to be before that. Right. That's where the command, that's where the MU commander comes in and, and, and is able to influence how people are going to operate later is by you know thinking through how he thinks or she thinks the operation is going to unfold 
And what are what, you know? What are my thoughts on maneuver? What are my thoughts on command and control? What are my thoughts on logistics and firepower? What are my thoughts on risk? Where do I think some of the risks are at? Why do those particular risks have my attention? And here is how I think we might be able to get at some of those risks. So I, you know, I, I think it's it's the the MU commanders. He or she has the the ability early in the planning process to influence course of action development and to, and to influence how people are approaching planning and, and execution of a particular exercise or particular operation. And so I, I think I think that gets at the, the at the question you asked. It does. Did you find yourself often or not that often? with some of the junior officers maybe challenging an assumption or opinion that you had and and did anybody ever change your mind i'm drawing blank on a specific example but i would tell people hey you can i would kind of make it known that you can change my mind and i would let people change my mind if i if that if i thought they had a better idea or if i was worrying about something that i didn't need to worry about they got pretty comfortable i think telling me and there would be there would be times where i'm like all right you know you're right a lot of it had to do with the ACE. And I would let my MUXO change my mind about those things. I'd let, I'd let the ACO change my mind about those things. Because sometimes I was worrying about something that maybe I didn't need to worry as, as much about it as I thought I did. You know, And that, that's what's great about having people like that. But also, I gotta, you got to be you know, humble enough to not just ask for advice and ask for input, but be able to take that input and be able to, you know, to change your mind when, when you think they've made a compelling argument to do that. So, you know, I think that's a, I would say a fairly important quality at that level, because I don't think you can really, I don't think you can really know it all. Talking about MACTAP operations are complex. These are complex operations. You've got people that you've got, you know, 20, 18, 20, 22 years of experience. You've got to be able to kind of recognize that you don't know it all. And some of your gaps are areas where there are certain people on the team that have that have some expertise. How often were you able to cross deck over to the well, specifically the LST, the LSD? Did you find yourself cross decking a lot just to get over there and get in front of people and that kneecap to kneecap leadership? Were you able to do that a lot, or were you challenged by the logistics of getting over and spending a day or two on the other ship? Yeah, probably, definitely, I would say not enough. Getting over to the LPD, yeah, yeah, I'm sure Captain Novice didn't mind. We had a really, really good captain who was the COT. He was a rifle company commander over there on the LSD. Uh, but the good the good thing about the LSD is that it's it stays pretty tethered to the LHD, and so and and getting over to the LPD the first four months of the deployment just was not going to happen. One of the the benefits of having my XO over there, uh, and the benefit of having an XO who I had worked with for going on three years when we deployed was, you know, I got somebody over there that 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 knows exactly exactly how I think about things. You know, that that was a benefit of having him over there, but was not I did not get around very much and probably could have gotten around a little bit more, uh, but the dispersed nature of the environment makes that a little bit challenging. Did you get any libo ports? More more liberty than we needed. Uh, we had plenty of liberty. We actually, the devil dogs would, would probably disagree with me. We had enough liberty, a lot of liberty in Norway, Stockholm, Sweden, Tallinn, Estonia, Riga, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland. Uh, and that was just the, the folks that were up north. I mean, they had some good liberty in the Met as well. We had, we had plenty of good liberty. So this was not a fifth fleet deployment where the liberty is far and few between. This was like the good old fashioned six fleet deployments where you hit quite a few liberty ports. And that was definitely something that we did. And then, you know, and to be honest, in the context of campaigning and the context of competition, having the Kearsarge 
pull in to a place like Stockholm, Sweden, or Tallinn, uh, Estonia, or Riga, Latvia, that is that becomes like the biggest thing going on in that country. And so it's 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 not just good liberty for the Marines and sailors. It's also a, a sort of a, a diplomatic engagement with sort of a military face to it. Yeah, that perfectly sets up for, for my next question. I kind of led you here a little bit. And I'm glad to hear that you got some liberty because I'm curious if you can share some of the lessons learned as a leader about libo policy. What worked? What didn't work? There's never the right balance between here's what you can and can't do. If there's no libo policy, you're going to end up with a huge international incident. If there's too restrictive of a policy, nobody's having fun. It kills morale. What worked for you? What didn't work for you? What, what sort of advice would you give to other leaders coming up through the Muse cycle on creating and implementing a good, balanced liberty strategy? Because it comes back to that point I was making about the NCOs, which is we need you to act like adults. We need to treat us like adults. Well, you, need, you know, it's that tug of war back and forth. And liberty is a great example to use on that because there's different versions of liberty based on rank, I think, well, there were when I was in. A couple things. Overall, uh, the Marines and Sailors of the 22nd Mew it absolutely phenomenal on uh, liberty. And, you know, the more liberty you have, the more liberty incidents you're going to have. Um, right. That would, be the, that would be the traditional belief, but I thought we did really, really, really good. A couple exceptions aside, but a couple things that we tried that I thought uh, worked or didn't work. Uh, for one, for the Marines and sailors of the 22nd Mew, we had, I would say, maybe a liberty attire policy that was perhaps a bit more dressed up than normal. I don't know if everybody does it the same way we did it. For example, I made everybody wear collared shirts, at least all the male Marines. I think that maybe caught some people by surprise when we came up with that. I'm not sure if everybody liked it, but we went with a collared shirt, Liberty attire, not to indict anybody, but if you let people dress however they want to in foreign ports on a deployment, you will be disappointed in how some people dress. I do think when we go to somebody's country, we ought to portray an image that I think is professional. And so that sort of guided our Liberty attire policy. I could tell when I was out on Liberty, I could tell who was in the 22nd Mew and who wasn't. We'll just leave it at that. So maybe not a not a universally popular policy, but it was something that we we established and stuck to. And uh, I think we were uh, better for it. We did have overnight liberty policy in effect for, uh, for officers and staff and COs. It was something that we started with. And then about midway through deployment, I canceled the policy. It didn't work exactly how I intended it to work. We probably had too, a few too many people kind of vi- violate the spirit of the order, if not directly violate the order, for which some of, a few of them were held accountable for. But it just got a little bit, I got the sense that, we were spending a little bit more, too much time planning overnight liberty, not enough time like doing, doing our job sometimes. I was, I guess I was maybe, maybe like I was surprised at how much people were taking advantage of the overnight liberty policy. Maybe that was, I was just being a bit naive on how much people would want to do it, uh, that were able to do it, but it just got a little bit, it got a little bit unwieldy. Again, we had some people taking, we had people taking a little bit too much discretion with some of the, with the left or right lateral limits of it. So we, we got rid of it the second half of the deployment and that sort of that sort of nipped that in the bud. But overall it's hard to read between the lines there a little bit because it it, yeah. it seems like when you say like they took some discretion there. I'm imagining like like went too far on a train overnight. Oh, was it that kind of stuff or was it uh, people actually getting in trouble? We had a few people get in trouble, but really it was about like, hey, 
if you're out on overnight liberty, you know, the rule was you can, you can spend the night in the hotel, but you're still mm-hmm. supposed to be in when everybody else is in. So if, every, so if all the other officers that are on ship need to be back at zero two, you should be back in your hotel room at zero two. 99.9% certain that that wasn't always the case. Now, probably lots of people were doing exactly the way they were supposed to. But there was enough, I think, enough people taking maybe like a little bit of uh, stretching the bounds of what was allowed a little bit too far. And so again, we, plus we had a few people get in trouble. And so second half of the deployment, we're just like, hey, we're just going to focus on ops. Second half of the deployment is where, where things can go start to go wrong. Uh, operationally, people are getting complacent. People are getting tired. Let's keep things focused. Let's focus on the mission. So that was the only thing. We had still plenty of liberty the second half of the deployment, but we did we did get rid of the overnight liberty for the second half of the deployment. There's no perfect liberty policy, but it's always interesting to hear what works, what doesn't work. I think every commander that goes out on you is always going to struggle with what's the right liberty policy. And I think your, your exp- sharing your experiences is probably really valuable to people listening to this as they start to consider what their libo policy will be. It was something that I spent a lot less time worrying about than I thought I would. You know, so overall, I was I was pretty pleased with how everybody behaved themselves and, and acted. And, and again, we were going to some places that we don't traditionally go to. And so I think from from that perspective, People weren't used to seeing us up there in those kind of numbers, nor nor did, did we have a lot of experience operating in places like Tallinn, Estonia, and, and Riga, Latvia, and Stockholm, Sweden. So, you know, it was kind of, we were kind of a new a, a new thing for them, and those areas were definitely a new thing for us. And again, it was a, it was a great part of the world to operate in, and we had an absolute blast. Listening to you for the past half hour talk about your Mew experiences and all the things that the Mew got to do and reflecting back on my Mew time, I realized, and and I'm trying to convey a lesson here, but if a listener gets the opportunity to go on a Mew, you will have the time of your life. Not only that, but you will learn things that you will never learn ever again and you never have the opportunity. Everything from – you were talking about pulling into Estonia. I mean port ops, cranes, docking. Being on ship, living out of a quad con, stuff flying around when the seas are rough. You know, hey, if you didn't pack it and you break it, you got to fix it. There's just so much that goes on when you're underway in a Mew that you learn and get to experience. And then you throw in the opportunity to work in all these different environments that you just can't replicate at Camp Lejeune, Twin Empalms, or Camp Pendleton or Okinawa. Just such a fantastic opportunity. It, it makes me wish I was 25 years old all, all over again and going out on Mew. But I just I don't want to conclude without asking you if there were some other parts of the Mew and your command experience that are worth explaining or telling some sea stories on to listeners. Yeah, I'll try to wrap it up pretty quickly. Uh, thanks for the thanks for the the opportunity to mention a couple more things. I, I think from a from a MU perspective and a MU command element perspective, the the two things that are the I think the biggest challenge and the most important challenges are one, an integrated MAGTAF does not happen by accident. I felt it was like the role the role of the command element was not to manage three oh five commands. The role of the, the MU command element was to integrate 305 commands. And there, that may not sound like much of a difference, but it is a difference. There's a difference between managing 305 commands from across the, the MEF and integrating those 305 commands to produce, you know, MAGTAF effects. That was, that's part of the, the fun challenge that being a MU commander is. The other big challenge and the other big responsibility of the MU command element is integrating the Mew with the Navy because the Mew commander and the Commodore, they own the they own the blue-green relationship 
that exists out there between the Mew and the Arg. And if the Mew commander and the Fibron commander cannot get along, then the two staffs will not get along and we'll, we'll be at odds with the three ships. Uh, you can assume all that to, to be in effect of the Mew commander and the Fibron Commodore are, are not on the same sheet of music and, and getting along. So that relationship with the Navy is, a, is, a, is an important one. It's a tricky one. They have a different service culture, a different organizational culture than we do. Working effectively takes a, a very, very, a very, very teamwork approach to to operations out there. And so, again, it, it's a, a lot of maturity, a lot of compromise, uh, just a lot of getting along uh, with people who may be looking at things incredibly different from, from you. Great experience, and I would uh, encourage anybody that has the opportunity to be part of a new to, to if given the opportunity to get in one, because there's nothing, you know, there there aren't a lot of other marine organizations on ship except for Muse. You know, there, we're not, we don't have a lot of other extra amphibious operations going on. You know, we've only got at mm-hmm. best 31 amphibs, you know, and we're, and we don't produce the level of the, the amount of Mew forward presence that we used to. And so there's a lot of Marines that don't get an opportunity to go on ship. And for so much of our history, being a Marine is synonymous with being on ship. Well, that's not exactly the case right now. We really have a struggle sometimes with with developing the level of amphibious expertise that we did, say, a generation ago when, when you and I were going on our, our first redeployments in the mid-90s and late-90s. You know, we, we were a lot more of the Marine Corps as a percentage had experience being on ship than they do right now. That is, that's because the amount of ships has gotten smaller and smaller over the years. And so you have less and less Marines that have shipboard experience, which I think is uh, just not a good thing for us. I mean, it's something that we have to work through. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, a Marine who's a company commander getting ready to, to chop over to a Mew and I was asking him a bunch of questions about embarking and everything. And I realized I was probably asking questions that he has no experience conceptually with the questions I was asking. And it, and it just dawned on me. I was like, wow, he's going to come off that view with so much more experience than he walks onto it with. But as a quick wrap up question, that point that you just made about the Fibron commander and the Mew commander really having to work together hand in glove. What I think I heard you say was, one of the key components to the success of that relationship is understanding that it's two different cultures. There's not one that's right and one that's wrong. It just is what it is. They're two different cultures. And that the key component to that being successful is the compromise that takes place between you and the Fibron commander. Is that a pretty accurate statement? Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly it. You know, it's it can be it can be frustrating. It can be there can be times when you just at each other's when you literally do not see eye to eye with each other on, on different things. We had mm-hmm. those occasions, and then there were times where you know we were kind of synced up, you know, at the hip on something. But you, you have to be ready for all of it. If you go into it with a, with a fist fight attitude, it's going to really do some damage, and it's going to impact more than just how each other how we how we treat each other in the wardroom or something like that. You know, it's going to trickle down to the well deck. It's going to trickle down to the flight deck. It's going to trickle down to the ready room and, and to different different levels across the three ships. So it's it's extremely important that, especially the Mew commander and his and his or her staff, take a very very a very very mature approach to to teamwork and and working together, not getting too emotional about certain things. I mean, I. I I say that like I did it all right, and I didn't. There was a day in and day out struggle to kind of keep myself in check to make sure that I wasn't doing something that was going to have, you know, second and third order negative effects. 
but that's just uh, that's part of the challenge. Overall, we had a good experience with the United States Navy and, and a good experience with the, with the three ships of the ARG. And uh, we got a lot of good stuff done out there for the United States Navy, for Sixth Fleet, for the Marine Corps, and, and for uh, the United States. Well, I'm glad to wrap up on a success story like a great MU deployment. And I'll tell you that I'm professionally jealous that you got to be a MU commander. I think if I had stayed on active duty, I, I would have done everything in my power to angle to be the first artillery MU commander there would have ever been. But uh, I don't know. It just, just embodies everything that we do as, as Marines when you're a MU commander. And I know you feel fortunate that you got to do it. So congratulations on having such a great command of the MU. And congratulations on your upcoming retirement. I would just say a couple months and General Alfred's coming up to do that. Yeah, he's going to retire me in, in early uh, early January. Thank you so much for your time on this podcast. I know we went a little bit over, but I think your experiences were so awesome that I just, I, there was no way I was going to get all the questions in. I appreciate your patience with me and giving great answers because I know people listening to this will really glean a lot of knowledge from it. So thanks again for your time on this. Thanks, Dave. Really appreciate the opportunity. Take care.